perhaps the, the characteristic of my teacher, which I think is a good thing to learn about when you, when you find your own teacher. And, and the thing what he said to me initially is this. He said, Merda, this path I follow, I know it works for me. It may not work for you, but give me two weeks and do exactly what I tell you. And if, the, if you change a little bit, stay, because life's too short to be wandering around paths that doesn't change you. But right. if you don't see a change in two weeks, you have my blessing to leave. Yeah. Because life's too short to be stuck in the path that doesn't change you. Right. And this is a sincerity of a teacher you need to have because he's yes. not looking for numbers. He's looking for quality and evolution. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is an important point to understand for everyone else who wants to, in effect, to enter a spiritual path, no matter what path they follow, the teacher must have this sincerity. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Merdad Nurami. Merdad teaches the method of heart meditation and the alchemy of inner silence to students throughout Europe and the US. Over the years, he has explored many different spiritual and esoteric paths. As a result, he has studied Sufism and Gnosticism for 30 years, with the last 20 years being under the guidance of renowned spiritual master, Dr. Sayed M. Asmayesh. He is especially interested in bridging science and spirituality and creating a link between the East and the West. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. And now here is Paul talking with my dad about today's subject, Sufism Revealed. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D. I'm super excited today. We're going to have an amazing experience. The title of the podcast today is Sufism Revealed. And our guest today is Merdad Naroni. Or I said that wrong. Is it Naroni? Naroni. Thank you. I, I even checked with him a minute ago and then my brain messed it up. So, Merdad, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. The privilege. Mm, my pleasure. And the way I came about making contact with Mayor Dad was through Rachel Epstein, who did that amazing podcast with me on visualization. So if you haven't listened to my podcast with Rachel Epstein, I highly recommend it. She's an amazing woman. She gave us a lot of great practical experiences in that podcast on how to use visualization for healing. And I have a long running, deep love of Sufism. I've studied Sufism quite a lot. I have a whole section of my library on Sufism, and my big focus has been Rumi and then uh, Ibn al-Arabi and a, a variety of other Sufi masters such as Hazrat Inyat Khan and too many of them to mention. So it's always been an interest of mine to explore Sufism, and I'd had this kind of Desire sitting in the back of my mind, and just out of chance, Rachel mentioned to me that she worked with a Sufi teacher and that she thought he'd be a great person to have on the podcast. And so that's how I managed to make connection with Mayor Dad. And we've had some great conversations and, and preparation work for the podcast. So I'm super excited to share what Mayor Dad's going to share with us today. And by the way, right up front, Merdad, what's your website? So it is heartmeditation.eu. That's simple as that. All one word. Heartmeditation.eu. Merdad, you've been a Sufi teacher 
are practicing Sufism for over 30 years. Is that correct? Not quite 30 years. Oh, definitely over 20 years. I've been practicing definitely over 20 years. Okay. So, and, and you are... You you are a Sufi teacher, meaning that you guide people and and help them through their development in Sufism. Yes, yes. I read, uh, I looked at your website. You have some great articles on there. And this morning, I read the article titled "Conscience and Consciousness" by you, and it was really very good. I I you can see here I've given it a thorough going over. And okay, and uh, so left- you have to remind me. You have to remind what he says because <laughs> I, I forget them after a while. <laughs> Well, you know, I know the feeling, believe me. Uh, it's really a look at the Sufi conception of the soul and how conscience works with consciousness. And you describe the, some of the basic Sufi processes for uh, learning to recognize the ego, recognize the contents of the unconscious, and do what would classically be called shadow work, and how to categorize your observations so that you become more and more aware of the deeper layers of the unconscious and you have some great conversation on on what the soul is and the sufi conception of the soul it was a really very well done article so i just wanted to let people know if they want more of your information which is fortunate because you got articles on there for free and it's uh you know it was very well written so i just wanted to say thank you for that beautiful article you're welcome thank you for reading it so, Merdad, from my studies of Sufism, I gather that becoming a Sufi is a progressive, comprehensive process of self-transformation. I'd love it if you could share an overview of your life story and what led, your, uh, led you to your interest in Sufism and why you feel Sufi teachings are important for all of us to consider today. Okay, Paul, uh, let me start by defining what I think Sufism is. So That's this a great is a idea. Defini- <laughs> defin- this is a definition which I've... I've come to understand the definition my teacher gave me many, many years ago, but I, through my own processes, I now agree with him, okay, at this point. And he defines Sufism as a path of substantial evolution of the body, mind, and soul. So this is an important point. And this definition is very important because I will refer to it through our dialogue. And in that context, to be honest, Sufism, there is no, there is no different in terms of the process uh, than other established paths like Zen, Buddhism, Esoteric Hinduism, Christian Gnosticism, they are in effect all trying to create the same process of substantial evolution of the body, mind, and the soul. So that's what I think Sufism is. And I think you need to think about that in that context. I just want to interject something. There's something unique in that definition, though. It's It, it includes the body, mind, and soul in a... a in various branches of Christian mysticism and others, there is a complete rejection of the body. Hmm. You know, the, and the body is sinful or dirty or something that you're trying to completely transcend. And so you end up with a lot of people that are in these practices that are not taking care of their body because it's something they're trying to get rid of. So I think right off the bat, the Sufi uh, path already is more holistic than a lot of these concepts because it's not rejecting the body. Uh, that is true. But also, I must uh, be honest with you, not all Sufi uh, teachers uh, agree with this definition. They, they, some of them are talk about in your way, exactly the way. They're saying they should reject the body. But uh, for a more open-minded Sufis, they see the body as a temple of the soul. And I need to take care of the temple. Without this temple, I can't walk, walk function in this world. That's and therefore, my development, This development of the body 
in many, many ways is very important. And the body is actually interface to the soul. And if you look at the other esoteric paths, like, for example, in Hinduism, yoga is a way, in effect, to connect to the soul through different practices of using the body and exercise. So, in effect, yoga is a spiritual exercise. If you do it exactly as the yogis do in India, not as they do it in the West, because in the West, without the spiritual aspects, of it, it's simple gymnastics. Your body becomes very flexible. But if you do it as a yogi does, then in that case, the body is actually is participating in the evolution of the mind and the soul as well, and is actually helping in that process. Yeah, and I'll bring something up there because you're bringing up an important point. What happens is if you don't have the body included in the process, as you've just described with, with how yoga is supposed to be done, then what actually ends up happening is you create a gap between the body and then what you end up with is an intellectual process, a bunch of beliefs that get tied together to be one's own gestalt or their their perception of what they think is right or wrong or whatever. But ultimately, what I see in all these practices that are excluding the body is that you end up with a, a duality that gets set up because you have this so-called spiritually advanced mindset which is the person's perception yet the body does not reflect the words and therefore you have a polarity that's being established and i i believe from years of working with these people that ultimately that's kind of like driving with your emergency brake on you'll get there but you'll ruin your brakes and burn up a lot of extra fuel because you're you, you're you're not the the the, the systems are not harmonious with each other when you're stepping on the gas pedal the brake just needs to be off <laughs> yes you are correct you need a balanced development is balanced evolution is important and so in effect you can't find the body to what is supposed to be you can't find the mind to what is supposed to be and the and the soul to what is supposed to do and in context of this balance this evolution becomes a very uh, balanced evolution otherwise what happens as you say it becomes topsy-turvy you might fall over or the body gives away, or, or the mind gives away, or uh, or in, in that sense, or, for example, some Sufis, for example, fall into ecstasy. And when they fall into ecstasy, they, they are no longer functioning in this world. So this, so this is, in fact, when you're not functioning in the world, you can't help the world. So one of the, in some sense, a mission of every Sufi is to help the world. And if you're in ecstasy all the time, you can't, you have, you, you can't really help the world. And that's the important point to understand. So you need to have the balanced. Yeah, and, and 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 where that plays out today, we're in our third wave of psychedelic revolution, and the same thing happens with psychedelics. If a person is using psychedelics as a vehicle for transcendence or spiritual experiences, but they don't ground that in what the medicines are teaching them by opening their consciousness, be it taking care of their health, dealing with challenges and relationships, healing unheld unhealed wounds then you you what you see is people that are repeatedly using plant medicines over and over and over again so they're they're putting themselves in this bliss state but but the world continues to be stuck at the same place it was at when they began because they're not engaging the transformative process yes but i i have to be specific here because a sufi doesn't take anything in the, in, in their body which harms the, the mental state right that, that is prohibited for a sufi because in some sense, the ecstasy doesn't come from a mental state. It comes from a connection that they have to higher consciousness. 
and you don't want to create disturb, disturb the chemicals in the brain. So therefore, you, you are in, in, in Sufi practice, you're prohibited to, to taking anything which uh, dis, uh, disturbs the chemical balance in the, in the brain. And the ecstasy of Sufism comes from the connection, the pull of the connection towards towards itself. And if this is not balanced, then you, your evolution is not balanced. So in some sense, part of the process, and this is why a Sufi needs a teacher, a guide, to guide that person so he or she doesn't become in, um, imbalanced. Uh, can maintains the balance through their life. If you don't, if you do this without a teacher, you have a danger of becoming unbalanced. So these are the important things. Which I know we're going to get into your your kind of your history and your evolution into Sufism. But while you're bringing that up, I, I'd like to share that in my library I have books that are collections of information from various Sufi masters, and and I have read in my studies of Sufism. That Sufi masters, once they're considered a master, they're, they're, they've finished their training. That their their tendency is to cloak themselves in whatever environment that they're in, so they fit in quite seamlessly. And in one of my books, it says, for example, if a bunch of people are sitting together smoking hash, the Sufi master will smoke the hash. In other words, they they are not exclusional of these experience but they will engage with the people and meet them where they're at and and i've i've i found that to be a very uh, unique way of interfacing with people but what you're saying would be contradictory to that yes because in some sense uh, so i mean everyone can take a different uh, view on sufism my my method of is 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 you don't you don't break the principles of the path in some sense, Sufism is a history of, uh, as we talk about later on, is history of being repressed, i.e. is repressed by clerics and different parts of society. But a Sufi integrates society, but he or she doesn't break the principles of the path in doing so. And in, in, and in the path of Sufism, you don't take anything which affects the, the mental state of the, of, the, of the person. Therefore, he or she doesn't undertake anything, any psychedelics or any drug related. In effect, in, a, in the Sufi masters in Iran, don't allow anybody who is addicted to drugs or any type of thing into the Sufi order. So these are very strict in that sense. So, but other Sufi uh, uh, people may take a different uh, view. But in the, in the path that I follow, I am very strict because when you, you change the chemical of the brain, you don't. You can, what happens becomes your brain become come, can become in delusional state. You don't know what's real and what's not real. And the, when the connection comes, the brain is interfaced and it acts as a filter. And if the brain is disturbed in any way, the filter colors the experiences. And therefore, it doesn't have an external reality anymore. So for a Sufi, the experiences must have an external reality. Otherwise, there's no certitude. So that's an important point. The path of Sufism is a path of certitude to about your essence and the connection you have. And if this information you gain has no external reality, you never gain the true certainty about it. So and anything which you ask the filter and, and chemicals in the brain acts the filter in that sense doesn't does not give you that certainty. So it's an important point. It, yeah, it is. But I'm going to post a challenge to you on that point, and not to challenge you, just to challenge you, but just to share what I know from extensive study. If I was to follow any of your so-called Sufi masters around and analyze what they're eating, I would find very quickly they got sugar in their diet and many other things that change the chemistry of the brain. If I was to analyze the chemistry of their brain while giving them a variety of breathing exercises, they would be changing the chemistry of their brain. If I put them into a room with 5G, it would immediately cause 
an inflammatory reaction in the brain and change the chemistry of the brain. At the end of the day, what we all have is our internal experience. And if you look at the research done by Houston Smith in 1961, he did a landmark research paper, which to this day, I believe it's the Journal of uh, Philosophy. Because so many people had this viewpoint that you can't use psychedelics to have spiritual experiences. And he had had some profound experiences. And I don't know if you know who Houston Smith is, but he's considered the world's oh, yeah. leading. Well, Houston Smith died a couple of years ago, but he was the world's leading expert on world religion. He's the only man in the world known to have completely devoted himself to and lived with and in the culture of the world's five great religions, devoted himself to them each for five years. And he was a professor of world religion. What he did was he went to, he, he, he challenged a lot of the religious higher-ups from various religions that claimed that you could not have a spiritual experience using uh, psychedelic drugs. And so what he did is he organized a study and he went to people that were using LSD, mushrooms, and things like that, and he had them describe what they considered to be a spiritual experience, an experience or an encounter with God or a mystical union. And then he went to church groups and religious groups and temples, and he got hundreds of people to write down exactly the answer to the same question that came by way of being in church, in temple, in meditation, in choir, etc. Then what he did is he took them all had them typed up with no names on them, mixed the cases so that only he with code knew which ones came by way of psychedelics, which ones came by way of authentic spiritual practices, handed them to all the higher-ups and people that said this could not possibly happen, and asked them to separate the people that had these experiences through legitimate spiritual practices versus plant medicines, and none of them could do it because the experiences were almost identical. And it became the most highly read study of its type because he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt you cannot differentiate those two. Okay, so here it is an interesting question. So it, uh, I think first you understand that what you said, that everything we eat affects the chemical of the brain. That is yeah. correct. But some things which are hallucinant affect the brain in different ways. Mm -hmm. Than a, a normal sugar does. So we have to affect how it affects the brain, including so, medical drugs, including medical medical drugs. So you have to say how, it, to how many Sufis are taking medical drugs. Yes, but some medical drugs are in effect which affect the brain are are different to the way I take if I take hashish or something else. So these mm -hmm. are different the way they affect the brain. Some of thing. them are worse. <laughs> yeah, some some are worse. But I, I'm just saying that uh, so that we have to distinguish between how it affects the brain and 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 if that effect is permanent. And what and what uh, the side effect of those 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 effects are. So that's the first thing we don't say. Definitely, second thing we don't understand is what is the spiritual experience. Now, yes. if, because there are different levels of spiritual experiences, and not all people gain those experiences. It takes years to get those experiences. So, mm -hmm. in, if I want to, for example, be like a shaman, connect to uh, to the nature, taking a drug can it connect me to the to the to the, to the, 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 the consciousness of nature. That is yeah. true, but to get to the absolute. To the absolute itself, the creator of the whole universe, where he gives you information which is 
in effect, is verifiable about the reality of the creation, this requires decades of evolution. Decades. So yeah. here we're talking about the experience of Jesus or Moses or, the, or these people. And these, these, these experiences do, do not allow, for these experiences, the person must keep the temple pure. Okay? So in this case, it takes decades. And in effect, the person that you mentioned, I forgot his name now, he, 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 he hasn't accessed all of the type of experiences that's possible out there. So, and these people who I'll be talking about are very rare. So they're yeah. not the people you find in normal gatherings. So, and this, this extremely, maybe this, this, there are very few people in the world, like maybe highly advanced Zen masters or Zen highly advanced masters, esoteric Hindu masters or highly advanced Sufi masters. And there are very few of these people. I'm talking about that level of access and that level of certitude and that information about the future, past, present, and about certitude that you gain, those require the temple to be pure. Yeah, I understand that, uh, that line of thinking. I could, I could challenge it on many levels, but I don't want to sidetrack us. Um, my question for you is where are those people when the world needs them immediately? Where are they? Well, those people are in effect are always persecuted and there are very few people in, 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 there are in actual, very few people are actually like that. One example was my, my master, Dr. Tarband, who was persecuted, was under house arrest and actually eventually died in hospital by poisoning. So, and in Iran, so these people are very few, and in effect, the people should in effect. And when, when, for example, one of uh, one of uh, groups got together and tried to raise the awareness of this this house arrest by the Iran regime, and we got far. In fact, Mark, Mark Pompeo, the, the, the Foreign Secretary of the United States or Secretary of State, actually spoke about Dr. Taban there about behind house arrest in 2017 and 18, 18, I think. So we got that far, but the, but the oppressive regimes, in effect, but by destroying the body. They destroyed the connection of this individual to higher consciousness. And right. This, and this, and there are many examples like this. And he is not the only one. Yeah. So there are many other things. What? Why were they persecuting him? Because he is a, he is fundamentally a human rights activist. So he, even though he's a Sufi master and he learned Sufism from his father, who's a master, he modeled his life to like Gandhi. So he became a lawyer, a judge, and he, he started the first human rights organization in Iran. Okay, mm. and and he's always about human rights, and an repressive regime doesn't want human rights, and right. they're always against him. So in some sense, he was, and and in fact, one of the French newspapers called him the Gandhi of Iran, right? Because of this. So in effect, this is a man of highly ad- advanced individual, which was in effect persecuted and under house arrest for, for almost two years, and then eventually poisoned, and so. So these are the cases where these people uh, die, and in, and and in effect, and the Sufi Sufism in effect is always under repression. Even Sufis in Afghanistan get killed. In Pakistan, they get killed. So this is the repression of the clerics and the tyranny system is what the Sufis suffer, and and other paths have suffered through history too. I'm not just saying that. For example, Gandhi suffered. In effect, Gandhi died because of extremism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, it's a it's a paradoxical situation. Um, it is the reality of human, the human condition of to unfortunately destroy the great helpers that come to see us. I mean, we we you know the the I've got a library full of all the Sufi masters and Zen masters and a long list of others, and you know the whole story of Jesus is pretty well known. So yeah. It's just a Jesus a, is the Jesus is the most famous case. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's the most famous case, but he's by no means the only one, uh, even close. 
And there's probably hundreds of them. Um, and I've written about several of them in, in my new book. But uh, I'd love to hear about how you evolved into your Sufi practice and what drew you into it and, and what it's done for you as a person. Well, I mean, to be honest, I was, I was born into the Sufi family. I mean, my, the year I was born, my father became a Sufi in the same year. And, and in that sense, and he was a, not a normal Sufi in the sense that he was, he was very determined. And, and uh, by living with him, from early age, I became exposed to his experiences, which were very deep experiences. And that, in some sense, touched me very as a personal level. And then I met his master, and I was touched by him too. But afterwards, uh, he died when I was young. And when I moved to the United Kingdom, down to the United States, uh, I guess I, the normal world took over me. I wasn't very dedicated in that sense until I met uh, my teacher in New York when I lived in New York. And that, uh, in effect, uh, caused the change in me because I realized, actually, what I was looking for, this person has. And in that sense, he was there to act as a catalyst within me to connect, create my own connection to the higher consciousness. And so after meeting him, things changed very rapidly because my firm in New York merged with another firm, and then I was transferred to London. And my teacher lives in Paris. But it was an amazing coincidence, or we can say divine will. And then I, from, from London to Paris was a short stop, so I started becoming his student for, for uh, every two, two weeks I used to visit him. So this started my own process of trading my own connection to the higher consciousness slowly, step by step. And this started the process of what we talked about, evolution of body, mind, and soul. And, uh, and I've been doing this now for over 20 years in that process. So really he, my teacher, really perhaps brought me back to what I should have been. And in that sense, and unleash this within me. Beautiful. This determination. It's well known in my studies, at least, and the people I've talked to, that to be a Sufi master is quite a long process. Could you give us an overview of how it is that, you know, if you devoted your life to becoming what we classically call a Sufi master, a Hazrat Inyat Khan or uh, somebody of that level of development, what would the process be? How does that unfold? The actually interesting thing is that if you think you want to be a Sufi master, you will never become a Sufi master. That's <laughs> well, I'm just trying to frame it in a way to ask the question. Yeah. That's the and I give an ex a famous uh, story with Dr. Taban. Once a Sufi who was 10, 15 years Sufi went to him and asked him, can I have an authorization to be a certain uh, person? And he said no. And the, and the, the, the student asked why. Dr. Aban said, because you're not qualified or, or worthy. And the man asked, why I'm not qualified and worthy? And Dr. Aban said, because you asked for this. Since you asked, it means you have a sense of I-ness, individuality. As long as you have a sense of individuality, you're not connected to higher consciousness. Therefore, you're no longer, you're not worthy or qualified for this. So this is the point. Nobody who's a Sufi comes into Sufism to be a master. So this is something that happens by, by the connection that he or she establishes and from the higher dimension that announces that this person is now is ready to be a teacher or a, or a master. And then the, the, his master or her, or her master writes uh, authorization or, or verbally announces that this person has this level. So this is an important point. So the person who enters Sufism, he or she is just doing to have evolution of mind, body, and soul. That's it. Whatever comes afterwards, it is what he or she is given by the connection that he or she has attained. So this is an important point to understand. There's just a small thing in there that you shared, which I've heard over and over again, and, it, and it, it, I think it needs some clarification. Your statement, and I'm paraphrasing, was that by because they asked, 
it means they're asking from ego consciousness. And you stated, if I heard you correctly, that means they're disconnected from higher consciousness. Is that what I heard you say? It says that you, you, as long as you have a sense of I, desire, which is to do with yourself, rather than desire to be connected and be in service to the connection, then you, you haven't achieved, achieved the level of evolution to be a master. A master, he or she has no inner desire and, in effect, the servant of higher consciousness. And the classic example I give is Jesus. In, in the Quran, when Jesus introduces himself, he says, I am the missionary of God, prophet of God, and I am the servant of God. And this is an important point, because this, to be the servant of God means I'm not the servant of my ego. I'm servant of God. And this, 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 in effect, is the last station of evolution. But it's endless. So until I am not the servant of God, I cannot say I'm a master of something. You understand? And then to become a servant of God, I must have reined my ego to such a level that I no longer have any desire other than desire to higher consciousness for me. Isn't it interesting, though, that they obviously had the desire to become more whole or to engage the spiritual process? And ultimately, it was the desire that led them to the place of not having the conscious drive for desire. And desire itself is a quality of love. If you have no desire, you have no will, and therefore you have no agency for anything. No, that's correct. But the desire, the desire is different curses. Like For example, God, Jesus says, love God above all. So he's saying the desire for God is above everything. And so desire for evolution is above everything. This this is the only desire that is allowed, because in that's for the for a higher for a higher state of being. So as as a seeker starts, the, the individual desires are in effect part of evolution. They drop off, and all they have is desire for for the higher consciousness. As Jesus says, "Love God above all." So yeah, he's, he's in effect guiding us. So in that sense, that's all is left. That desire is allowed because in effect, it's desire for your own origins. Mm -hmm. and this is what the and this is what the pull the, the, the attraction, the love of divine. Attraction occurs between this desire, the pull of the high consciousness towards the individual, and the individual pull towards high consciousness. So this is this the only desire left to somebody who has become a master, and this is the initial desire they had. That that's a nice description. I think one of the things I was trying to point out because I've heard this sort of way of categorizing things a million times, and it drives me loopy. In that it it creates the illusion that. If you have an ego or desire that you're disconnected from God or, or higher levels, whatever you want to call them, but the reality is you can never be disconnected because you wouldn't even exist. The difference is, is that your connection is just unconscious. Exactly. And also, and also the connection it evolves. So the point is that when we talked about here, the desire only to love God above all is a level of Jesus. Okay. But in, but but it's not a, but it is a level that someone can attain for a you know for after decades. But it doesn't it's not a level that someone starts with. So this is an important point. And so so we start with one one desire desire to improve ourselves, to create different version of ourselves, the, the evolution of mind, body, and soul. And this slowly takes over all, all our desires. All our desires fade away. In that yes, there's an evolution. And 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 the other aspect, and I know even. Even Al-Arabi addresses this very beautifully in his teachings. He, he, he's always stating in his own ways, there's nothing that you can have a desire for that isn't God because this is all there is. God is all there is. So therefore, if, if you're in a dogmatic religion, be it Islam or any other one, 
then God's meeting you at that level. And as your evolution grows, then God meets you at that level. It's just that it becomes less and less constrained until it becomes unconditional love, and then you're home. <laughs> yes, and Ibn Arabi is basically describing the process of evolution, of how this love manifests in the individual as they go along, and the yeah. nature of this love changes. So, and Ibn Arabi is very beautifully, in his poems, writes about this very beautifully. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Have you ever wanted to make a real difference in the world? CEO of the Czech Institute, Gavin Jennings, and I designed the Czech Academy to be the most comprehensive, complete system in the world for learning the art, science, and practice of holistic health. The Czech Academy is a multidisciplinary education system that teaches you all the essential functional anatomy, physiology, and assessments you'll need to identify the root cause of people's common body and health challenges. You will learn how to perform sensory, motor, autonomic nervous system testing, and specific orthopedic tests to determine exactly what is wrong with each client and what to do about the findings and which specific medical and healthcare professionals to refer to for a comprehensive multidisciplinary approach to healing, performance enhancement, and well-being. You will learn how to assess a client's diet and lifestyle factors to bring anyone back to balance and educate them and their family on how to stay healthy. The Czech approach isn't a this-for-that supplement-based approach, but is based on the science of organic farming principles and whole food nutrition, which is what we need in the world now more than ever. You will learn how to use work-in exercises to calm the mind and cultivate life force energy. These practices are simple enough that anyone can do them and they support your immune system, calm and clear your mind, and are excellent for stress management. Work-in exercises also integrate the brain, heart, and organ systems, making our internal systems much more stable while greatly enhancing our ability to heal from any health challenge or injury. All Czech Academy students are guided by highly skilled, experienced instructors and mentors and learn a scientific approach to stretching, joint mobilization, postural correction, movement skills development, corrective, and high-performance exercise. All the prerequisite training for each level of your journey through the Holistic Lifestyle Coaching and Integrated Movement Science Training Levels 1 through 5 are provided. You will be part of a tribe of healthy, open-minded people from around the world that share a genuine interest in mastery and helping people look great, feel great, and live their dreams. Students and graduates of the Czech Academy are successful in their own studios, clinics, have started their own health and healing retreats, work for elite sports teams, in big corporations, in gyms, physical therapy, chiropractic, osteopathic, and medical clinics, and have served as private coaches and guides for many elite people, ranging from those in the movie, music, dance, and other industries. As you are surely aware, there has never been a better time to master holistic health, corrective and high-performance exercise. People are finally waking up to the fact that they need skilled, personalized help from people with genuine mastery because so many have been unable to get healthy through standard medical approaches. The Czech Institute is now accepting applications for spring semester of the Czech Academy. Applications close on April the 15th. The Czech Institute is offering three partial scholarships for the program, one in each region, North America, South Pacific, and UK plus Europe. To learn more and apply, go to academy.checkinstitute.com. That's academy.checkinstitute.com. Everything you need to know is right there for you on the website, and our staff is happy to answer any additional questions you may have. We don't believe in being average, but we do teach excellence. Join now and make yourself invaluable.
Did you finish sharing everything you wanted to share about how you got into Sufism or is there more you want to share? Uh, no, the only thing I would say is, in effect, uh, perhaps the characteristic of my teacher, which I think is a good thing to learn about when you, when you find your own teacher. And, and, the, the, and the thing what he said to me initially is this. He said, Merda, this path I follow, I know it works for me. It may not work for you. But give me two weeks and do exactly what I tell you. And if, the, if you change a little bit, stay. Because life's too short. We're wandering around paths that doesn't change you. But right. if you don't see a change in two weeks, you have my blessing to leave. Yeah. Because life's too short to be stuck in a path that doesn't change you. Right. And this is a sincerity of a teacher you need to have. Because he's yes. not looking for numbers. He's looking for quality and evolution. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is an important point to understand for everyone else who wants to, uh, in effect, to uh, enter a spiritual path, no matter what p- the path they follow, the teacher must have this sincerity. And also that what the, t- the teacher must have the ability to, to cleanse your mind of dogma and superstition. And this is a very important point because all of us have a, can be, uh, have susceptible to superstition and dogma from the culture we bring in. And what my teacher did said, okay, Merda, you're interested in spirituality. Go and read about Hinduism. Go and read about esoteric Hinduism. Go and read about Zen. Go and read about Christian Gnosticism. So that you, so your, in effect, your knowledge increases. Then you realize actually the path of connection is only one. Connecting your soul to the other origin. The method may vary, but the journey is one. And this is an important point to, to break these blinkers away, to see in effect that all established spiritual paths are trying to achieve the same connection. And in effect, they have similar stations and expenses along the road. Okay, and to, to and in effect, not to be dogmatic. They say that this is the only path. So these are important things. And then you then then you yourself become a unifier of paths because you understand what our paths are saying, and you're not rejecting the paths, but you're trying to create a unity within yourself for all their paths and allow and bring create a bridge between different paths. And this is something that my teacher and I have done many many years trying to create inter uh, path dialogue between Zen Buddhism about Buddhist. In fact, every Three months, I go to Zen monastery and teach. So these are the things that are important things that we need to understand. This is how we can evolve the spirituality, by creating bridges across paths, not divisions. Well, on that note, on your website, you, you had some references of some uh, good Sufi books and Sufi authors, and I tracked them down and bought one of them. And I think the guy's name is Japanese, it looks like. Yes. He's a genius. I think he knows. I think I read somewhere he, he, he learned about 30 languages in his lifetime. Well, yeah, you can tell when you read his writings. I bought, I bought his book on Sufism and Taoism, showing the differences and the parallels. And I, I read, I don't know, maybe a chapter, but it was really high quality because I've studied Sufism and Taoism enough to have a really good grasp of the concepts. And I thought that his writings were fantastic. He is, uh, him and Corbin are the best, uh, scholastic, uh, writers about the uh, comparative studies of the uh, paths I've ever, ever come across. And I prefer him to Corbin for one, two reasons. Corbin never wrote in English. So I'm always reading translation of him in French. Something, something loses in tra- translation. I can't speak French. Secondly, Corbin takes a bit of use to in order to understand the way he, he describes things. But uh, Izitsu, he writes in English and he has a clarity. And that interesting thing about Izitsu, if you know about his life, that he, at, and he was initially, his father was a Zen person. And as a, as, as a teenager, he rejected Zen. As a <laughs> yeah. And this actually, this, this process led to great uh, discovery for us because in effect, it allowed him to go and learn different languages and compare, do compare to study different paths. And he, this, actually, this rebellion nature 
was a great service to humanity. At the end of his life, he returned to Zen. <laughs> in, in, in the middle, he created a great deal of work and, 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 and are very priceless and, and, and are very, very academically uh, great clarity. And I love yeah. his, his work. Unfortunately, they're not that, they're not that in print. The only one unprinted, the one you saw. The others you have to find in a very uh, difficult libraries. And I have about 10 of them, but they're not uh, the other print. Well, there's actually several of them on Amazon by him. There was at least six or eight books by him on Amazon on these topics. Yeah, yeah, but I think there are some of them. When he tried to buy them, you can't find them. I tried oh. that before on Amazon. The, or you have to go and find them in a special uh, library. So I tried that before, but I only, but the Taoism one is the one which is the most uh, famous one and it's written. And the one on Zen, you need the one on Zen. That's a good one to read. That one you can buy on Amazon too. I just put them all on the screen and asked my soul which one to buy, and it took me right to the Taoism and Zen. I said, oh, great, yeah. I'll do it. So I'll, I'll keep plugging away as I can, but I'm doing Yeah, because so the much. first few chapters is about Ibn Arabi, and then, and then the middle moves to Taoism. There's a Tao. So that's a very important. Yeah. Well, could you share some history on on Sufism and tell us about some of the great masters and what specifically made them stand out? Okay. Now, I want to make a little uh, distinction between the term Sufism and the process. Okay. Okay. Because the term Sufism came much later to me. So if you think about it, people always get confused because the word Sufi, there the are two different uh, ways to describe the word. Some people say, it, is, it comes from Sophia in Greek, meaning wisdom. But mm -hmm. I don't think that's the, the very viable. The other one's to say it's, it's, it means wool. And means Sufi means wool, wool. Wool, like sheep's wool. wool. Yeah, and because the, the Sufis were wanderers and, and, and wore, wore wooden robes, they're called Sufis. And this word came into their existence in around 2nd or 3rd century of uh, Islam, or, or about 7th or 8th century AD. So this is what people think about. But if you think about the process itself, remove the label, you understand, and people like Inal Khan still does this, and also Edris Shah. You see that Sufism, the teachings exist for way a long time ago. I mean, and, and this wisdom is from the beginning of man. And in effect, the history of goes to Christian Gnosticism and before that. Okay, and so this is the important point. So, uh, if it, so but if you wanted to define your history of Sufism only after, after Prophet Muhammad, then, then I can talk about that. So if I take that uh, context, even though I think Sufism predates everything else, I would say the first uh, important person in, in Sufi writing is the person called Hassan Hassan Basri. He, he was born ten years after Prophet Muhammad died, and he was born in the house of the spiritual heir of Prophet Muhammad, his cousin Ali ibn Talib, and he trained Hassan Basri and sent him abroad in in Iran and Iraq. And the important things of this Hassan Basri is because in, he actually crystallizes the method first how to individual connection to the absolute and abandonment of egoistic mindset through self-reflection and it called Mahasabha. And he was very, very uh, uh, analytical about this process. So he was the first person. And he also the first person really to write a good commentary on the Quran. So these are important person. The next person I would say is, is Johnny de Baghdadi. He came in the 8th or 9th century. And the reason why he's important, because he created a balance between sober spirituality and and excess, uh, he created this balance. And also he became the root of many different Sufi orders. So this is an important point. What was his name? Jonay de Baghdadi. So Jonay is his name. Baghdad is the town he was, he was, he was born in. Well, he was, he lived in. He was born in Iran, but he lived in Baghdad. The next person I would probably say along this road is Ahmad al-Ghazali. Ahmad al-Ghazali 
had a brother called Muhammad Ghazali. And he is, Muhammad Ghazali is the most famous theologian in the Islamic world. And he is the, perhaps the, the most influential dogmatic uh, propagator of all time in the Islamic world, his brother. And later on, he changed. But by the time he changed, it was too late. He writes a book saying that everything I wrote was, rub- was rubbish. But but that time, the uh, uh, damage was done. But his brother, Ahmad, is a great Sufi master. And in effect, uh, and he had influential to, to convert his brother into Sufism later on in life. And why he is important? Because he put emphasis on Sufism being a path of love. And it's always been a path of love, but no one actually wrote treaties on love. And see and see the whole existence as a manifestation of love. And this Ahmad Ghazali was very famous for doing that. And in effect, he created, in some sense, that improve a great movement which led to Sufi poetry of love poetry. So, and he lived in the 11th century. So he really was the instigator of Sufi love poetry. The next person I would probably comment is that person called Najmi Dinakobra, and he was a 12th century uh, Sufi. He was the f- master of the Rumi's father. Ah, and cool. Lived, and he lived in uh, Eastern Iran, in where, now Afghanistan, Tajikistan, and uh, Western Iran, uh, Eastern Iran. And he was uh, very famous for classification of the path through different stages and in terms of experiences. So he started writing experiences down in a very, very uh, classified manner. And it's very important in that sense. And, uh, and he actually wrote it down in, in, in terms of the experience of different levels of consciousness that the person goes through. But this is an important uh, depth of classification. Is there any books on that by him or of his of his not research? In, not in English. Not in English. That's too bad. I, I have I have scoured the world for English and I couldn't find one. Mm. I found uh, one paper written on it in English. One paper, mm. uh, and uh, but his books are in Arabic and, and so that's not difficult to read. The other one is the one you mentioned is Ibn Arabi, who was born in the twelfth century and he's the most famous. Uh, Sufi philosopher, because he actually put together a very complete uh, Sufi philosophy based on unity of existence. And the idea of the unity behind existence is nothing new. It's been thousands of years that people talked about it. But he put a f- formal philosophy on it. And, and this is a very important point. And, uh, and, so, and then his t- and students later on completed this in this work in, more, in more, uh, much more, uh, I guess, complex and complete matter. matter. But Ibn Arabi is very important in that, in that process. The next person we talked about is Rumi. Yeah. Rumi, to me, is the most famous, well, not to me, to everybody, is the most famous Sufi in the world. That's definitely true. He is, yeah. And, he, and his poems were the most best-selling poems in the United States for, I don't know, for a long while. And the reason why he's, uh, for me, is very important because he unifies three traditions of Sufism within himself. One, the tradition of Najmin Nikobra, which I said that it was the master of Rumi's father within himself. He, he in effect unifies the Western Sufism of Ibn Arabi, because Ibn Arabi lived in Andalusia, and in Andalusia, because he were not under the, the Baghdad Caliphate, he had more freedom of thought. Where, where's in Andalusia? Arabi, in Spain. Oh, okay. And because he, he was in the Western, uh, in, in Europe, he had more freedom. So he was able to, 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 uh, to philosophize much freely. And his teachings are very great importance. And he, uh, Rumi actually learned from uh, Ibn Arabi because they, even though he was 30, 40 years younger than Ibn Arabi, they actually met. And so he learned that. And then finally, he unified his master's teachings, which is Shab's teachings, which, which came from uh, Azerbaijan of Iran, Azerbaijan of uh, the, the, the countries of today. And he brought the rhythms, 
rhythms of which were the Sufi rhythms and the mystic ceremonies of Samo. He, in effect, was a great unifier of these traditions. So therefore, in some sense, he unified Sufism and rejuvenated the whole Sufism himself. So that's why I think Rumi is one, a very, very influential character in Sufism. The next person I would say is a 15th century Sufi master called Shah Namatov Valley. He was born in Aleppo, in Syria, and he traveled extensively all throughout the Middle East, and he settled at the end of his life in Iran, in the eastern Iran. And why is important? Because many, many Sufi orders were unified by him. So, so almost five Sufi orders became unified by him. And also, he wrote treaties on Ibn Arabi's works, which are very deep. Secondly, he brought classified the rhythms, which we talk about, for the, in the first time in history. So the rhythms exist in nature. They don't exist just in Sufism, they existed in actually in the Bible, in the Psalms of David. If you listen to the Psalms of David in the original language, you can hear the rhythms, some of them, not all of them. And you can hear them in the, in the in Hindu sacred text. So this exists in nature, but nobody classified them. Mm. And he classified them, and, and according to the level of emptiness, they create within the person. So this was a very scientific approach. And he was a musician too. So these are important uh, people, I think, are very important to read. Again, his books are not written in English, no, no translation I know of, but these are, but these are important people for Sufis, uh, for Sufi path, in terms of keeping the Sufi tradition alive. And so those, those are the people that I've mentioned. Well, one question that I have got to ask is I, there's not a single woman in there. And I know there are very evolved Sufi women because there's a phenomenal documentary called The Mystics of Iran and it features all the hidden female Sufis <clears throat> in the hiding in the mountains, doing their practices, eating fire, and doing all sorts of amazing things. That is actually true, and, and, and it's a sad case because the women are, as we know, unfortunately, are persecuted for for hundreds of years in Islamic culture, and and, and Sufism is not an exception. In fact, uh, if you read Ibn Arabi's books, uh, in one of his books, he mentions all his teachers. He mentions two teachers who are women. One is Shams and one is Fatima. And he says, Fatima, she was 90 years old, but her energy was so, so powerful, she looked teenager to me. She wow. Writes, he writes this. And he says that I never saw any other master with more powerful soul than Fatima. Wow. But, but she was persecuted immensely during her life. And he writes about the persecution that she suffered. So these are important. The problem is that, that the woman who wrote stuff usually wrote it under men's name. They would have to to stay alive. <laughs> exactly. So so I can I can't really say that for hundred percent that this was actually a man or a woman. So you can't really hundred percent say it. But the, the great Sufi man, man, the only person I know for for a fact was a great teacher uh, uh, for a woman was actually the student of Hassan Basri. Who was her name was Rabbi. And oh, sense, I just right? wrote. I just wrote down to ask you about because I've read her. I've got her poetry in my library, and it's beautiful. Yeah, and in some sense, when he talked, when you, when you read Attal, Attal wrote a commentary about Hassan al-Basri and Rabbi and the dialogue. And when you read the dialogue, in some sense, Hassan al-Basri has to learn from Rabbi yeah. because <laughs> Rabbi, she's in, in her answers are more complete than Hassan al-Basri, who is her teacher. So these are important things to understand. So, but but she lived in a life of persecution. So these are all these are important things. So it's a sad case. Hopefully, if the, the, the environment changes, there'll be more Sufi women uh, masters again. Like, and unfortunately, in Sufism, this has not been the case for uh, for hundreds of years. While in other parts, like esoteric Hinduism, you have many many female great Sufi great uh, Hindu masters. But in Sufism, because suppression uh, has not been that many. 
Yeah, this brings up a question, and uh, it's it's an important one for me. If Muhammad was so enlightened, then why did he maintain such inequalities between men and women? So this is a question you need to an answer by looking at the context of religion. Who wrote? Who I, who wrote? Who created religion? And is this religion? The religion that Muhammad thought, or is the clerics have created this religion? Well, that's so the key a, thing, because you see, if you read the Quran and you hear what, I forgot the name of the angel that was channeling to him and told him, write, 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 you know the story. Um, but this is supposedly have come from the angel. And as soon as I read that, I'm like, no, this is not an angel, either that or Muhammad's own cultural bias was so strong that he was interpreting the angel through his own cultural biases. Yeah, so I think for you to have this uh, understanding of the, the role of woman in, in terms of the mind of Muhammad, you should read Ibn Arabi's book, uh, the last book, uh, Fusul Hakim. Uh, One chapter in Muhammad, the last chapter, is, is a, it is a dialogue he has, an astral travel with different prophets, 27, I think, of prophets. And the last chapter is his, his connection with the Prophet Muhammad. And here he talks about the role of woman in terms of the mind of Prophet Muhammad. And here... That chapter is dedicated purely on this, on the feminine. I, I got to read aspect. it. If you, I won't remember the name, but because of the spellings and everything, could you email me that and, and uh, sure. I'll I'll also put it in the show notes because I think to truly understand more of Muhammad's viewpoint on women could be very therapeutic for a lot of people. It is great to be honest. Look at if you just look at his life. He married a widower. Who was, who was fourteen year, yeah, fourteen years older than himself. Yeah, and and he, and he and he and he was dedicated to that woman all the time. Yeah. And this is so. This is this. this, this so so it's a, and, and and back in this in this, in a six seven six seven century. So he was very enlightened in that case. Also, we don't what we what what people marginalize is the role of his his daughter who was uh, Fatima. She was a very advanced uh, person. In effect, in according to the, the tradition, she received revelation. I don't she doubt had a direct it. connection with with the, with the higher consciousness, and all these are written down. But people ignore it because they want to uh, marginalize the role of woman in an Islamic mindset. But that's, that, this this is a tragedy, I, and I think it, it needs to be changed. And I think uh, hopefully, when the the mindset of the regimes like Iran changes or the regime changes, we can actually highlight this 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 these facts. Well, that's why I brought it up, and also I'm hoping that maybe there are women listening right now that might be interested in having you as a teacher or to find a Sufi master that sees a woman with equality as opposed to playing religious games with them. That's, that's, that's definitely correct. In fact, in the 20 something years I've known my teacher and, and, and 20 years I've, I've given workshop with him and on my own workshops, there are, for every, every person that ends up in my workshop, there are nine women to every man. Excellent. <laughs> And, and I think it's because, to be honest, this aspect of the soul is much more, uh, that this yearning more than the men do. And I think, and, and this is a great, uh, message for me because I think it means that the future is going to be f feminine spirituality. If this is the evidence that if it's nine women to every man, and this is a great change. We need to change the balance in the world. We got to do it. We can't just have men. We can't just have men as spirituality. You need to have female spirituality. You can't remove 50% of the population and, and through suppression. No. If we have truly woman uh, spirituality, the balance the whole world would change. And the reason, for example, why this uh, in the movement in Iran it has captured the world because it's a woman's movement. 
if it was just a, a right for a freedom, it wouldn't capture the world. The fact that right. women uh, are doing this, it captured the whole world. And this is an important point. The time yeah. has come that the, the women and feminists should take over the world in that sense, to create this balance again. Well, it's either that or we're all dead. Yeah. No, I agree. It is, it is an existential, existential uh, requirement for the for survival of the, our species and in the my mindset and spirituality. That the feminist spirituality should take, should take hold and take its rightful place in balance between both men and women. I for agree. Two, for, for too many centuries, it's been lopsided and it's not right. No. Hi, everybody. Have you ever wondered why your blood is red? It's because it's full of oxygen and life force. It's what keeps you going. But what if I could tell you about something else that's red that will add more life force and keep you going? And if you start with a red juice before you have coffee or tea and wait a few minutes, you might find that you either don't need the coffee or the tea or you need less of it. But this time, instead of getting coffee and tea, you got a lot of nutrition and a lot of great stuff for stress management and detoxification. And it's so important. I got Drew Canoli. It took me two years to get him to come <laughs> hang out with me and talk about this. I said, Drew, tell me more about your red juice. And he is right here to tell us what is on with your red juice. My kids love it. Everybody I know loves it. Well, I love that we have it for kids. Because yes. when I was a kid, there was this big red dude that would burst through a brick wall. And he was like, oh, yeah. And he would <laughs> feed me a glass of 50 grams of sugar, <laughs> giving most people diabetes, yeah. ADHD, yeah. addiction. Obesity. Obesity. All the things, right? Mm -hmm. So when we created red, it was, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. If we could create something that could create lasting stamina, lasting energy. And then we started to look at our ancient ancestors. Mm -hmm. We talk about the Vikings, mm -hmm. the people that were rowing across the oceans, oceans. for days. <laughs> yeah. To go to war. Yeah. What were they taking? Well, they were taking rhodiola. Yeah. Rhodiola is in our red juice. Yeah. And then we were like, okay, so out of all the mushrooms, yeah. what's one of the best medicinal mushrooms that can give us long lasting energy? Mm. We found cordyceps. Cordyceps mm. are absolutely amazing. Yes. Not just any cordyceps or rhodiola, glyphosate residue free and organic. Mm -hmm. And how can we make it taste better? Then the, oh yeah, you yeah. know, how do we make it taste better than that without the sugar? Yeah. We added a little monk fruit. Monk fruit's amazing. Yep. And we found the best berries on the planet. Mm. Berries in, in high amounts, which we have in the red juice, actually help increase stem cell creation in your body. Mm. What's better than that for our little ones and for us? Yes. And so many people are just lethargic. They're lacking energy. Yes. What could we do for that? Red juice in the afternoon, 2 p.m. rolls around instead of a nap, instead of the coffee. Drink the red juice. You're going to feel so much better. Well, if you need the nap, take the nap if you can, but then take the red juice to kick you back into gear. Exactly. I love naps and yeah. I love coffee. I, I do too, but I love to make sure I got the nutrition in me first. You know, the other thing is berries are a natural stimulant to the adrenal glands. So mm. if people would do a little red juice before they do coffee and tea, they would pick themselves up naturally, except this time they're bringing in nutrition. And unfortunately, coffee blocks almost every vitamin and mineral you can put in your mouth. So Hey, there you have it, right from the man himself. If you're ready to get red with life force energy and vitality, go to Organifi.com. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And to make it even better, use the code C-H-E-K-20, all caps, to get your 20% discount on checkout because you're a living 4D badass and we want you healthy. I love you. Bye-bye.
Well, Merdad, I love hearing about this. And I, I really love the way the whole, um, I like the, the, the heart space and the mind space of Sufism. Is there other approaches that the Sufis take that you'd like to share? Sure. I mean, apart from reflective analytical thinking, uh, another way the Sufis to try to expand the mind is through stories which have multidimensional an, uh, questions uh, and make the make the, the listener to open their mind, take the blinkers off. And this is a similar approach to Zen and Quans. And Quans, where the answer to the problem is not something you can come by normal thinking. You need to be inspired to have an answer. And Sufis have done this. And uh, and one of the famous famous Sufi, or you can, people have disagreement if he was a Sufi or not, but I, I think he was a Sufi, is a, someone called Mola Nasreddin. And his stories are around... And Edris Shah, uh, he, he translated all of them, I think most of them, in, in English. And he, li- he exists in the 13th century. And to be honest, there's a lot of stories perhaps been attributed to him after <laughs> after he passed away. And some people actually don't think he actually existed. But I do <laughs> think he actually ex- But I, I do think he existed because there's contemporary references to him. So I think he existed. It's the same with Lao Tzu, you know. Yeah. So And, and in that sense, he and, and, and the good thing about him, and he's usually the butt of the jokes, and this is important because when you want to criticize somebody's thinking, when you criticize them, they block off. But if you are the butt of the jokes, that criticism goes away. And if you use uh, humor, all offenses go away. And this is the brilliance of Nasruddin. Nasruddin. So I will add, and one of the problems that every spiritual teacher has is that the fact that people are locked into a certain mindset. And, uh, and I think uh, this story of the sermon, which we're going to hear, uh, here would, would try to uh, open up. So I, I will ask people to listen to the story, wait a few minutes, and then I give you one of my reflection on the story. The important thing about Nasruddin's story is, is that every reflection point of every individual is correct. There is no wrong answers. This is an important point. I've given this, uh, these things to many people in classes, and, ev- and every time I hear a different aspect, I learn something more. Yes. So, the point is you never self-censor yourself. You allow the thing come out. And in this way, you get a hierarchy of answers and you get a, a completer, more complete understanding of the, what Nasruddin is trying to say. Okay. So even though I would give only one understanding of this, there are many, infinite almost, of, depending on the person's perspective. So we will share the first one. It's called Sermon. Got it. Here it comes. The Sermon. Once, Nasruddin was invited to deliver a sermon. When he got to the pulpit, he asked, Do you know what I'm going to say? The audience replied, No. So he announced, I have no desire to speak to people who don't even know what I will be talking about, and left. (laughs) The people felt embarrassed and called him back again the next day. This time, when he asked the same question, the people replied, Yes. So, Nasruddin said, Well, since you already know what I'm going to say, I won't waste any more of your time. And left. Now the people were really perplexed. They decided to try one more time, and once again invited the mullah to speak the following week. Once again he asked the same question. Do you know what I'm going to say? Now the people were prepared. So half of them answered yes, while the other half replied no. So, Nasruddin said, let the half who know what I'm going to say tell it to the half who don't, and left. (laughs) 
It's too good. It's too good. I love that. <laughs> that's that's very masterful, I must say. He was a master. Yeah. Okay, so actually, let me ask you what you think. What is he trying to say? So you are my now listening instead of normal workshop. What well, do you think this is? to me, what what I feel in my heart that he's saying is. You don't need me to tell you what you already know. You need to get still enough within yourself to hear the truth that's always inside of you, which would be the voice of your soul or the voice of God or the voice of the higher self or, or spirit, however you want to talk about it. Um, so, so, you know, I, I think as an adjunct to what I'm saying, he reached a point where he realizes no matter what he says, people are going to hear what they want out of it, out of their own programming. But if they get still and stop talking and honestly listen, they will find that anything that he would have been said would, would already be said from within them because it's the one great truth that you have to find yourself because if it comes by somebody else's word, you're always going to judge it and, and, and uh, use your own ego's frame of reference. But if you honestly listen from your heart, then you won't deny the truth because it's coming from within you. That that's my interpretation of it. So that's an interesting interpretation, and uh, and it's uh, it's it's valid, it's all valid, and it's a good one too. It's a very good one, I think. Now I'll give you my take of it, and we can compare notes. Okay. So in effect, his so what Sufis uh, and all spiritual teachers, it doesn't matter who they are. If they're Zen or anybody else, what they, they, in effect, when they're trying to talk or discuss something, they, all of us hit the, the, the crowd of about misconception and preconceptions, which blocks us to the, to the, the teachings they give. So the first time he comes and asks, do you want to know what I'm talking about? And he says, yes. So he's saying that if you, as long as you think you know, then you're not ready to receive. Mm -hmm. So you need to understand that you're ignorant of being ignorant in order to understand. So this is the first time he says. The next time he comes and he said that and says, "Do you know what I'm talking about?" And says, "No." Then he says, "You're not ready because to say no means that you you're not not receptive yet. You need to be be eager. You must you must be in a state of wanting to know. So I can't impose my teachings to you. You got to be in a state of wanting to know then and be receptive to understand. That's an important point. The next one he comes and he says, "When half say yes and half says no, he says, well, in that sense." As long as you, th this is the important thing, this is the important thing, knowing a little of that something is very dangerous. That's what he's trying to say. Yeah. So in effect, as long as you thought you know your a little bit, you think you know more than you do, and that's not good. So you actually have to say that I know nothing. That, and that point goes up. And this goes back to the Plato's uh, statement. He says, I'm the wisest human being on the planet because I know I know nothing. You mean Socrates, Socrates. Well, I thought it was Plato said. Maybe Plato said as, as, from Socrates' point of view. Well, yeah, Socrates is the one who who would say, "I know nothing," and that's why the Oracle of Delphi said that he was the smartest man in the world. Okay, so maybe I got this uh, reference. But I think it's written in Plato's book, so maybe I got it uh, mixed in my head. Yeah, because Socrates didn't write anything himself. Plato wrote everything uh, on behalf of Socrates. Or right. His words. Anyway, but the, the concept is the same. So as long as I think I know something about something, then this blocks me out. So a lot of people think about not about Sufism or about Zen, but that's not that's different. Actually, being a practitioner, yes, practitioner, of course. and the practitioner starts by saying, "I know nothing." 
Let me become an empty receptacle so that I can receive. A full receptacle cannot receive. I have to be empty. And this emptiness, which you, which you pointed to, to become empty within yourself of all preconceptions and and, pre, and misunderstandings that you think you have, to, to hear your inner truth takes time. What you described is, is correct, but it takes a receptivity and evolution to get to a level that you mentioned, which was your take on that. I've been working on it my whole life, and I'm still working on it. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know what? I am too. So when people talk about, when people talk about master, I think this is the, this idea of master is actually a misnomer. To me, there are no masters. There are just students and more advanced students and really advanced students. Yeah. There's only one master and that's the collective consciousness, universal consciousness itself. The yes. rest of us are really students of different degrees. So when I go to a teacher, he or she is just a more advanced student than me and he's yeah. just teaching me. And there's and also. Yeah, the, the other factor is is that <clears throat> somebody can be very evolved in one area, but not as evolved in another area. Yeah. So, you know, I won't go into the long story of the technicalities of that because it's been well-researched and I've studied it extensively. Um, the, the, the whole concept here we're revolving around is silence. And it's interesting because there was a time when Buddha, I believe it was a year or so that he went silent and and he said you know if you're ready to learn from me you will learn from me in silence and osho did the same thing and from my understanding it was because both of them found it frustrating that people kept taking what they said and twisting it to make it what they wanted it to be but then referring it back to the teacher and so they both said we're going to go into silence now and spent a year sitting with their students in silence knowing that those that were capable of communicating at that level would, would get the message. Most people couldn't really get anything out of that because they're not ready for that. But I just think it's interesting that the, the sermon and the issue with Buddha and the issue with Osho are all pointing at this, you know, going to the silence, which is the source. Yes, but to be honest, to, to, to develop this silence, that's the, the process. The process of developing this silence, it takes long, long time in some sense. And it's important to, and it's, and that's why, for example, the mystics go into seclusion in order to develop this silence within themselves. And, and this, and this happens in every path. Mystics in every path go into a seclusion state, a meditation state to develop this silent connection, which we'll talk about later, I guess, when it comes to the process itself. Sure. Um, so Merdad, you and, um, other Sufis I've studied speak of the importance of the heart in Sufism, but the way Sufi masters conceive of and relate to the heart, in my observation, is quite different than the Orthodox religions and their scriptures. Uh, can you share why the heart is so important to Sufis and how their orientation differs from most religions and traditions that speak of the heart? Sure, uh, but uh, I think I, I just want to start because I. What what we religion does is not what exactly the teachers meant to say. For example, if I go to Gnostic churches in Europe, I see Jesus sitting there, a statue of Jesus, the robes opened up and pointed to his heart. And so he's he's in effect teaching us that the heart is a, is an important gateway. So all these Gnostic churches have this symbol. So it's not that just Sufism In effect, these Christian Gnostics have this. All the spiritual masters and most paths consider heart to be a very, very important gateway. Okay. Now, for a Sufi, we are, a Sufi uh, uh, believes or 
accepts that the human human being is a multi-layer of consciousness. So like like, like those Russian dolls, yeah? We talked mm-hmm. about yes. And some of these layers of consciousness are, have physical aspects and some have metaphysical aspects. So the, the first physical aspect of the, 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 the seeker encounters is the, the paleo cortex, the ego, center of the ego, the old brain that we share with our all animal ancestry. So this is the first level of consciousness. The second level of consciousness that the, the person that a seeker, super seeker understands is the neocortex, the new brain, which only humans have. And, and so these two levels are very interesting because what happens that if you, if you're not careful, most people happens that the ego controls the neocortex and the neocortex is like a supercomputer. Mm-hmm. So it's like a quantum computer, which now ego has. So you empower the ego immensely by allowing the neocortex to be in control by the, the pedocortex. So this is the two levels that we need to first understand and start to differentiate this activity. So I'm this just. Curious, your your model excludes the reptilian brain. Are you including that in the limbic system, which is the yeah, so I, animal yeah, brain? When I, yeah, when I said a paleocortex, that includes the reptilian brain. Okay, so you're including that. Okay. Now, the next interface that the consciousness that the, that, the, that the Sufi encounters is the heart. It's an important point because now heart is the last physical interface of the consciousness, that, that the, the physical interface, and it's a gateway to the metal, metaphysical side of the human being. And there are different levels of consciousness that exist in there. And by heart meditation, by heart focus, this access point is open slowly through meditation. That's why Sufis focus on the heart and for this access point to be open slowly. So it's like, uh, for example, so at the moment I'm talking to you, I don't have any sensation on my, my big toe. But since I focus on my big toe, I start feeling everything around it. And the same thing with heart focus. If I start focusing on the heart, slowly I get the sensation of the heart itself and get more sensitive and the attributes of the heart becomes more and more active. Then I, and I open this gateway and this uh, this connection establishes to the other side of myself, the metaphysical aspect of myself. That's why the Sufis treat the heart as a very, very important case. And in Sufism, they call it the heart, the house of God. Because yes. This is the gateway to that access. A lot of Rumi's poetry is about the heart. Exactly, because he's talking about the Sufi meditation technique in order to access this to come, so he says the heart is the house of the beloved in the Sufi poetry. So the house of the beloved is the house of God. So and this, the heart is the access point. So this is why the heart meditation is the most important part of meditation that the Sufi does. Sufi does other meditations too, but the heart is the very, very fundamental one. Yeah, the heart is also interesting because if you look at the seven chakra system from Hinduism, it's right between the lower three chakras that would relate to the animal body and the upper three, which would relate to the realm of spirit or the implicate order or that which cannot be weighed or measured, but is real. Yes. yes. Or the, it's the psychophysical integration point. Yes. And in, in some sense, in Sufism, when we are working, even we work on the, on the other chakras too, but we do it in some sense with heart focus because the heart connects, creates a connection, that connection, divine connection to the other chakras too. Right. This point, through this gateway. So the development of the chakras are now under divine guidance rather than any other guidance. So this is what the Sufis focus on the heart. I think that's a very important point you just made because there's a, there's a lot. I've run into many people with this mindset in my years of teaching and being a therapist. And sometimes it's yogi, sometimes it's other people. But a lot of people, as you know, get attracted to CDs, developing spiritual powers. So they might orient themselves to the third eye and become very strong with their clairvoyance or they might 
be oriented towards other dimensions, the seventh chakra, or they may feel that they have to tell everybody about their experiences, but often forget that those experiences are uniquely their own, but present them as an objective fact that everybody else is supposed to follow, like it's the rule of God or something. So what I'm showing, and to reiterate your point, is that if the heart's not guiding the access to opening and utilization of the higher three chakras, then then the ego kind of starts painting the whole picture and you end up with CDs or powers, but they ultimately, um, I think, tend to pull people away from the dissolve of the ego to find oneself in all that is. I couldn't have put it better myself, what you just said. It's exactly my point of view. Uh, in fact, it's a Sufi point of view. So the Sufis work on the ego, to rein the ego, and, and work on the heart. And the heart, then the other chakras are open. So in, in, uh, in, and the two points you made is interesting, because Hafez, the famous Sufi poet, he says, for those who have seen the unseen, their lips are sealed. So this is an important point. So when you see the unseen, your lips are sealed. This is, and the second thing, Rumi says, or another person, I think it's another one, not Rumi, says, open the eye of the heart. So what does that mean? It means when you walk on the sixth chakra, let the heart open it. Yeah. So that, in effect, you see things that, not not to the physical world, you see it through guidance that you receive from the heart. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you're not letting the ego intercept what you see or dictate what you see or pull you towards the ego. Let the heart, eye of the heart, dictate you to see the unseen from the eye of the heart. So these are the important points that the Sufis make, which is, which is exactly what the point you make. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, I've shared it once or twice on a podcast over the years, but since I've done over 200 of them, I don't think it'll hurt to share it again. I was teaching my Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 2 program probably in around 2006, and I was setting the class up, and a woman walked through the door who was from, I believe, Sri Lanka or um, a country like that, she was a native of that country. And the instant she walked through the door, in my third eye, I saw her energy field and it blew my mind. I was like, I had never seen a human being with an energy field like that. It looked like a diamond was shining out of her heart and her whole field emanated almost translucent light, like a sun bursting from her heart. And it shocked me and it, and it was very intense and it, and you know her field was big i mean she her her aura was probably 40 feet past her body and it it was it was so mind blowing to me that i put down what i was doing i walked up to her shook her hand and said may i talk to you for a minute so i took her next door to my office and told her what i had seen and she smiled and she said, oh, thank you. You're the first person to ever mention that. I said, could you please share what your spiritual practice is? Because I've never seen an energy field like that in my life on a living human being. And so she said, well, do you have a piece of paper and a pen? And I said, sure. So I got her a piece of paper out of one of my art books and I gave her a black watercolor pen and she wrote down her practice, which I've been praying to and using as a practice since she gave it to me. 
And, and she wrote it in Chinese, which her master gave it to her. She said, Paul, the only thing I do, I've been working with my master for years now, and this is the only practice he gives us. This is all we do. And she translated it for me under the Chinese, and it says, use your heart to feel what you know. And she said, that's my only practice is to use my heart to feel what I know. And so since that day, I've, I've had it on the wall and I, it's part of my morning prayers and my reminder to always bring my consciousness into my heart, especially when I'm getting irritated. <laughs> no, it's, um, as I said, the, the, the fact that Sufis focus on the heart is, doesn't mean Sufism is the only path, as, as you just clearly showed in your story. So it's the other, other paths use the heart too. Actually, I think she's from Singapore now that I remember Singapore. But, but, but an incredible experience for me to be able to see that. I am clairvoyant, but um, I don't walk around looking at people's energy fields and stuff because, one, it's too painful when you see all the pain they're going through. But I asked my soul years and years ago, please only show me what you want me to see because you want me to interact with somebody. So when she walked into the room, you know, I didn't see anyone else's aura, but the instant she walked into the room, all of a sudden my soul was showing me this, this soul's development. And I think the reason I was shown that is so that I could get this prayer and this practice as a, to, to, to use it in my life and share it with other people. Merdad, there's a lot of confusion regarding the ego in religion and modern approaches to spirituality. As we've been talking about, the ego is classically described as the locus of our sense of identity or sense of self in psychology. Religions, on the whole, seek to abolish the ego, yet world history is rife with accounts of the religions themselves conquering, proselytizing, raping, and killing those that don't join or submit to their religion. Christianity and Islam both being examples of these very kinds of crusades. This kind of behavior among religions and now the global elite called the World Economic Forum trying to subdue e the, uh, the ego of its adherents while at the same time behaving like egomaniacs sends a very confusing message to people. Then we have the ego bashing that is almost constant in New Age spirituality movement worldwide. Yet both of these situations I've described overlook the fact that without an, without an ego, there would be no sense of identity. And without any identity or self, there would be no means by which we could love ourselves, others, or even the world or life. For love to exist, there must be an I-thou relationship. Even our I-thou relationship with God depends on the locus of our individuality, or there can be no relationship. So, Merdad, could you share the Sufi perspective on the issue of identity? where the Sufi masters ultimately feel identity come from and how these issues of the ego are handled in Sufism. You've already touched on it, but I wanted to take this approach because of everything that I just mentioned. I think there's a lot of confusion about the ego, and I don't think trying to kill the ego is a very intelligent way to go about it, no matter who's telling you to do that. So here yeah, it's interesting. So I would go back to the definition of I gave in Sufism, which is evolution of mind, body, and soul. Is that yes. important? Because all three aspects, the mind, body, and the soul, can become the center of our identity. So I can, if I, for example, identify my body, how I look like, and everything else, my, everything else, this in effect creates a sense of identity around my body. 
if I start to think that my identity, the way I think, my perspective becomes part of my identity or my soul. Now, it's important for us that, in effect, this identity, how I identify myself, are put in the right place. Otherwise, if it's imbalanced, then it causes a problem. So a Sufi doesn't try to kill the ego. He or she tries to reign the ego, keep it within its own limits, doesn't let it transgress to other parts of it. So this is an important point. And the other important thing is that a Sufi, by definition, understands that any identity that I give to my body is temporal. So my emphasis should, in effect, be my true identity, which is non-temporal, which is the soul. Itself. Yes. Mm-hmm. So in that context, it puts everything in the right context and when to control it, how to control it, and not to allow it to transgress. So these are important points. But if I'm totally egoistic in the sense that I, I start, I, I, an egoistic person, he or she puts her entire identity on the physical realm. And in that sense, he or she, in effect, doesn't ever look at the soul or the mind and to try to develop it. And in that sense, when I become totally in that mindset, all I care about is the material side of myself and the material world. And I become very possessive and very controlling. And in this case, it's very destructive. So now everybody has a bit of this. We all live in a spectrum. But if we don't make ourselves, rein ourselves a little bit, what happens is that we go to tyrannical mode. Because what happens is the ego wants to control everything it can. Right. And, it, and, and, and in doing so, it becomes a tyrant. So the fact difference between a tyrant and me is that the tyrants that let this go while I've tried to rein it in. And most people have a sense of reining in. But the evolution requires to, to rein it to such a level that it creates a balance within them so that it doesn't allow the, the ego to dominate. I mean, the, it dominates every aspect of life. It keeps it within their own, the right context, the right balance. Okay. And they also know that true identity is the, not the non-temporal one. The source of the identity is the non-temporal one, which is the, the soul itself. So even though the, my consciousness occupies my body, which is my temple, and I might identify with this body, this itself is a temporal identity. It's not a non-temporal identity. So I must try to focus on my true identity, which is the, my soul itself, and not get locked into this. Use this for the purpose it was given, to work and operate in this world and try to help others and help society to evolve. But that's it. Paleo Valley makes some incredible superfood bars that are a lot different than what most people think of as a superfood bar. I've got Autumn Smith, the creator of their superfood bars, right here to tell you about them. Autumn, what is so unique about your awesome superfood bars? Well, our superfood bars are unique because not only do they not contain refined sugar or GMOs or any of the freaky additives that you'll find in most bars or gluten or anything, but they're just whole foods. They're low in sugar. They're made with superfoods like ginger and broccoli and acerola cherry and collagen from grass-fed and finished animals, which we all know is like a fountain of youth. And so the best part about them, though, is probably the flavor. They come in chocolate and apple cinnamon, and we have so many more delicious flavors to come, and they're easy to put in your bag to feed for you with your kids. And I hope you love them all as much as I do. All you have to do to get access is go to paleovalley.com, and you can use the code CHECK15, that's lowercase C-H-E-K, 15, and you can get 15% off. And I hope you love them. That's awesome. And just so you know, that's P A L E O valley.com. And I know you're going to love Autumn's superfood bars. There's an important aspect to what you just said, and that is that the mind 
the heart, all aspects of ourselves above the body reflect themselves in and through the body. Therefore, the body is an important, even though it's temporal, it still is animated by and an expression of the soul. It's just that it's a vehicle for which we engage in the experiences of growth here in this realm of existence, which is obviously temporal-based and, and spatial-based and allows us to experience the separation that gives identity, but also allows us to love and to learn at the level that we can have things more tangibly oriented. Um, you know, Plotinus warns that the soul's greatest addiction is to matter because the soul itself's origin is unconditional love or God. And therefore, until the soul has something to see and recognize itself in, it doesn't have any way to become self-aware. So Plotinus is warning that the problem is that the soul falls so deeply into matter and gets so enamored by it, it forgets that it isn't the matter. How this relates to the conversation is if, if one's overly identified with their body, they become like an artist who's addicted to the paints, but not the act of expressing their love through the art. So I think what I'm trying to point out here is that the soul is infused into the body and the body is an important part of the process. It's the temporal part, but it's also the part that's very important in the beginning of our spiritual development because it's the one place we feel our sadness or we feel our guilt or our shame or we feel the results of the poor diet choices we've had and the lack of willingness to care for ourselves. And if we can't love our own body, then the concept of loving the world or loving God is, 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 um, I would say misplaced because you can't love somebody else better than you can love yourself. And if you don't take care of yourself, then you're just projecting these ideas that you really love the world or love God more than you love yourself, which I think is a trap that leads a lot of people to doctors and therapists. I mean, as I said before, I mean, we, we spoke this at the beginning of the, the podcast that, in effect, we need balance. And the balance is a key. Balance is an important point. Yes. And in the sense that I need to take care of my body and make sure my, my, the soul, which is the, the seat of my consciousness, operates in a, in a, in a good balanced manner. And also, and the ego, which is the, the, the apalo cortex, doesn't take control of it and make me act in a way that actually the detriment to my body and to my soul's development and my mind development. So this is an effect, the process of a spiritual evolution, to recognize that I am not my ego. I am something else. Ego is just a part of I can, what I can identify with. But even if I identify my ego, it's only temporal. And my ultimate identity comes from the non-temporal side. It's important. And when we start developing a connection, what happens is that this body slowly becomes a conduit of the higher consciousness itself. Yes. It's exact examples of what Jesus says, I am the servant of God. He's saying this. He's saying, I am the conduit of higher consciousness. Yes. I obey higher consciousness in everything, and my ego has no, has no control of it. My ego is under my reign. And this is a simple thing. And for example, in Christianity, to say Jesus is a lamb of God. Why they say this is interesting, because lamb is a very, very gentle animal. He's saying that, in effect, my, my ego has become so tame and so rain, it's like a lamb. But therefore, I am the servant of God because my ego is very, very tame, very rain. 
And I'm a conduit of, the, uh, of higher consciousness. So this is the point of evolution that every human being can attain to if they follow the paths of, of masters like Jesus or uh, or other spiritual masters. And this is the process, that keeping this balance in your, but also making sure that eventually this, this soul becomes a conduit of higher consciousness. And they can only do that if I put everything in the right place, but also make sure they don't transgress and keep them in the right spot. So, and this is the evolution we need to talk about. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of, I study and practice alchemy and I've developed my own system of physical, psychological, and social alchemy called Czech Life Process Alchemy. Um, but in alchemy, one of the symbolic representations of what they call the work of alchemy is they show a horse with two riders and it's the same person, but there's a copy of it. One of them's leaning right and the other one's leaning left and the horse is looking a bit confused. But one of them represents the soul and the other one represents the ego, the two riders. So in alchemy, they talk about the work as merging the two riders. So there's only one which would be represented by the higher self or the soul. And then the horse is no longer confused and symbolically the horse represents freedom. So really everything that you're saying from the Sufi perspective also is in harmony with the alchemical perspective of merging the two riders to be guided by God or, or source. And then in that you ultimately have freedom. Yes. And it's interesting to go back to Jesus life. When he was riding to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he wasn't riding the donkey on the facing towards the donkey, the back of the donkey, to point this point out that I don't let my ego lead me. The donkey is the animal's instinct. I I do not allow the ego to write to direct me. I stand opposed to the ego. So these are symbolic teachings that exist in Christian Gnosticism too. So what the, so this is an important point that I need to become a conduit of higher consciousness and not let the ego interrupt this process, which it does all the time. But it but I have to learn to, to, to control and rein it. And this is what all the different uh, methods of controlling the ego exist in every different spiritual path for this purpose. Yeah, I didn't have this in the notes to talk about, but because I'm engaged in this process very deeply and have been for a lot of my life, there's something that I want to share. And actually, I've read Sufi stories. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Majud. Story no. of, uh, it's a, it's, I won't tell you the whole story because it's a long story, but it basically, it's a story about the soul guiding the ego and letting the, the the student learning to let control go of the ego to that of the soul or to God. But one of the things that I've learned is that one of the reasons that the ego does not want to let go to the soul is because people's conceptions of what the soul is usually reflect their belief system their, and their mindset. But the reality of it is, and I can give lots of examples of this, the soul is a lot more brave and open and courageous than the ego is. And so when we truly follow our soul, your soul could tell you to shut down your business and go into service or go to another country and help starving people or any number of things like that. But the ego will immediately say, oh my God, you know, how am I going to feed my family? I'll lose my house. I don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. So one of the, one of the things that, that I've had to 
really come face to face with many times is that our soul has ideas, ways, concepts of relating and loving that are so evolved and, and put the ego so against itself that it takes tremendous bravery to truly let your soul guide you. I call it spiritual courage. Yes, uh, in the sense that it's, it requires a degree of trust and a degree of uh, certitude to, in order to do this. And this, is the, and this develops through the process of evolution so that as the connection establishes. This is what it comes about. But in some sense, one understand that whatever cards I'm giving in this life, whether it be the physical kinds, like cards, like my attributes, the physical attributes or things, they, they, all this can be used in service of humanity, not just the service of myself. And, and, and so the fact that I'm given a deck of cards is how I play the cards is important. And higher consciousness, it, it doesn't actually reward talent. It rewards determination and effort. And it makes you responsible for the talents. It's yes. Important things. Mm-hmm. So this is an important point. When you understand this principle that you're award, you awarded for your effort more than your talents, it creates a huge balancing, rebalancing act. So it for does. example, uh, for example, I'm not a good musician. I'm, I'm deaf, I have deaf ear, but, and my, my teachers are much, much younger than me and they, they play well. And, and, and it, for, for them to play one instrument, one, one music instrument might take them 10, 10 minutes, might make 10 hours, but, the effort I put in is more than them. And then in that process, I create something which they cannot create because I didn't, didn't put the effort in. And this rebalances. And my teacher says, wow, this, what you've done is amazing. But it's only because my determination, not my talent. My talent is little in music. Yes. Okay. And this applies everywhere else. And I think, uh, and to be honest, the fact that God gave me a little talent in music is actually a blessing because I, 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 I appreciate this, this teaching that determination is what's rewarded, not talent. Yeah, I love it. I agree with it. Um, I, I, I could cite many examples of why I feel that's true, but it, I don't think it's necessary to do that. I have a note here that you wanted to share the story of the rope. Is that one of the stories that we have yes. recorded? Yeah, it's about the connection. It's, a, it's about connection. So it's important to... to it's called uh, uh, Play Time and Place. Okay, I've got that one. Let's play that. Okay, so... And listen to it, and I'll ask you for your... Uh, Interpretation. <laughs> I'd love to. I, I, these, these things are very exciting to me. A matter of time, not place. A man called, wanting to borrow a rope. You cannot have it, said Nasruddin. Why not? Because it is in use. But I can see it just lying there on the ground. That's right, that's its use. How long will it stay in use like that, Muller? Until such time as I feel that I want to lend it, said Nasruddin. Yeah, I've actually read that story in in one of my Sufi books by that Sufi or about that Sufi master. So, what do you think he's trying to say? Well, to me, I could. There's a lot of ways I could uh, I could approach that story. What rises in me. That to share with you is that the person wanted to borrow the physical rope, but the rope is actually a symbol for something greater than the physical rope, and that he's ready to lend it, lend it to them when they're ready for what the rope actually points to, what it represents, not just a chunk of vine. Mm-hmm. 
yes, uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's, a, that's a valid and uh, very good uh, take of it. But I would add a little bit to it because a rope is a, is a use of connection. So he's saying that cannot borrow your connection. Right. Yeah. And Beautiful. he says you can't. He says you can't. But he says he's lying there. He says that's in use. Why? Because it is in use. I'm using it. I'm using my connection. Yes. The better question should have been asked the master dean. How can I make my own rope? Right. Yeah. That's the question that, that he should have asked Nasruddin. And Nasruddin said, okay, I will teach you how to make your own rope, how to yeah. become connected yourself. So this is the point that you understand. So this is the, another take on the same story, which, which is similar to what you just said, but in a different, slightly different. Well, yeah, you see, what, you, what you're able to do, though, is you're able to actually show what the rope's pointing to. I sense that the rope meant something specifically to him that was important and that the act of lending out the rope was taking something from him that ultimately they can only really have their own rope because he's saying that this, he's not saying it directly, but overtly he's saying the rope's in use right now because it's expressing something. In other words, it's symbol. So for example, like I said, I pray to this drawing that this woman gave to me. So someone said, can I borrow your drawing? From that lady, I would say, no, it's in use right now. (laughs) And this use is invisible, right? The rope is the use, the connection that Nasruddin has, and is invisible. Yes. And another person cannot see it because it's invisible. But the other person can create their own one. And that's the important point. And if he asked Nasruddin, how do I create my own rope? He would have taught him as a teacher. Yes. I think it's, I love these Sufi teaching stories. I love the Zen stories as well. In fact, Right after you, I'm interviewing a Zen Roshi. So today is Sufi day and Zen day. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and Zen has very many different sim- similar teachings to Sufism. They are very, and, 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 and uh, they're very, very complementary. When I go to a Zen monastery, I speak, the, the, the abbot of the monastery comes and listens to my teachings. That's fantastic. And so, uh, so it's very, and, and, and they're very open minded. That, that abbot is very open minded. And it's good to have this dialogue. I'm grateful that we're getting to listen to your teachings today because I personally love, you know, I feel very alive when I get to connect to someone like yourself and many of the guests that I have on the show because it's so nice to actually have time and space to be with people that have really committed themselves to the mastery of something, not not just spiritual mastery, but it could be anybody i find whenever i'm w- with someone who has devoted themselves to mastery that they're a great vehicle to inspiring others to create mastery in some area of their own life and so for me the podcast is one of the most important aspects of my life because i get to see the world and life and spiritual development through the eyes of other people that are as in love with Love as I am. <laughs> you're, you're very kind uh, to say these things, but I, I don't consider myself a master. I'm just a simple uh, student walking the path. But I do share the same love for the ev- evolution of evolving and getting better. I just use the word mastery or master because it helps us understand that we're talking about someone that's really devoted themselves, right? Like we yes. we would say Mozart was a master of the you know of music or something, you know. Um, and he might not think he's a master. He might have thought somebody else was more masterful. Who I don't know. But um, what I know of Mozart, he, he, he did he did consider himself as a master. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Well, what I've read, what I've read his life, because yeah, at the age of young, he was teaching other other much much older than himself. But he's a genius. I'm not a genius. I'm just a simple student. <laughs> That's okay. I'm 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 a simple student as well. But I'm passionate about it because for me, it's the only thing that really makes me feel that life is meaningful. I there's a lot of things I could do to make myself very rich, but if it distracted me from what I know I'm here to do, then I would feel rich but poor. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to ask, how does the Sufi conception of essence correlate with soul? And what is the Sufi conception of soul? We've talked about it a bit, but you talked about the Russian dolls. Maybe you can help us understand, maybe get more of a visual of, of when a Sufi talks of the soul. What is it that they're really talking about? So it depends what you mean by the soul. If you by the soul, you mean the phenomenon that gives you consciousness. The origin of that, then, then I, the essence of, then the essence and the soul are the same. But if you mean in a more, um, I guess, in a more generic way, then I would say that the essence is the ultimate reality of the metaphysical side of us. So we talked about four, four levels of metaphysical rea- realities, and that and, and they're nested, and so right. and they start from the heart. So the first level after the heart is called, in English, is called spirit. The translated word is called spirit. The mm-hmm. next is called in, in Sufi terminology ser, which means secret, the secret, the secret layer of us. The next level is in the in the English translation would be hidden. And the final level, the seventh level, is hidden within hidden. And this is the essence. Mm. Okay. And so these are the layers of consciousness that every human being has, but very few explore. And each of these consciousnesses have a relative uh, frequency, which which the person under meditation sees in terms of uh, in terms of the the experiences they they see in the visions understand and as they move to these levels of the, their own consciousness okay beautiful um can you share how to create the connection to our essence i mean i know it's the hidden of the hidden and that's a lifetime process or a multi lifetime process but are there things that you could share for any of us listening that we could go practice and be working at the level that we're at on connection to our essence. Yes. So the important point about the connection that it requires emptiness. Emptiness yeah. is very important. So without emptiness, you're thinking. Without thinking, you're not connected. You're just thinking you're connected to your thoughts. You're not connected to anything other than thoughts. Right. That's an important point. So if you look at all the spiritual paths, the primary step is to control the thoughts. We create emptiness. Okay. And that, and, and, and they all use similar approaches. They use mantras, breath control, thought projection at a particular point. Okay. And Sufis use all these, but they use another me- mechanism, which is called the rhythms. And rhythms are very important because music has this power to switch the, the thoughts from this or- origin. So I'm not fighting my thoughts because the music is switched it off. You understand? Yes. And this, and, and, and that's what the Sufis use are they call sacred rhythms. Why? Because the nature, the connection they create is sacred. And as I said earlier, these rhythms exist in nature and they exist in across all different paths. But Sufis have, have collected these and use this in a very distinct way. So what they do in effect, the first thing is they, after they, the first part of the process is to reflect on the, on the ego and the daily practice to remove the ego and to reign the control of the ego. After that part, they start playing a, a particular rhythm in order to create emptiness. A- after the rhythm is f- finished, 
they play it until they have emptiness. So an important point is they play it. Here we can't play it uh, because we can, we, can, we can only listen to the rhythm. But when you play it on a percussion instrument like a daft, um, the way you play this daft is you, you play it holding across the heart. So the vibrations enter the heart directly. And that's an immense impact. What it, what it does is the heart sends a signal to the brain to change the hormone balance in the body, to increase serotonin, reduce adrenaline. And this brings quietness. And this is the beginning of emptiness. And then in this stage, the Sufis focus on the heart, just on the heartbeat itself. As it's moving up and down the heart, they start feeling the heartbeat. And this is the beginning of heart meditation. And it has no end because as you focus on the heart, you settle to the heart vibrations, become more sensitive to it. Each time, become more sensitive. So in effect, you understand that the whole world is exhibiting vibrations. And the heart is receptacle for this, if it's sensitive enough. You can pick up vibrations, everything around you. I, for a sensitive heart, can pick up the vibrations of everyone's thoughts. How this, how they're feeling, how they're sensing. And in effect, this, this sensory heart can actually be non-temporal sensation through time and out of, out of, out of space too. Depend on the level of the, the, the person who's done this after 20 or 30 years. I just want to interject. I've also found from my own practices with the, the, my heart that the heart also projects light that's unique. For example, if I'm doing a deep meditation where I'm meeting with spiritual guides in the astral dimension, sometimes it's hard to see. So I will open my heart and the light of my heart will shine and I can see in other dimensions. But if I try to use my third eye without that light, I struggle. But if I let, if I just bring my consciousness to my heart and say to my heart, show me what it is that you want me to see, all of a sudden there's a luminous light that illuminates these other dimensions. And I, I haven't found many people talking about the light of the heart. Have you had any of those types of experiences? Yes. So I here, I think you, may I understand, you're referring to the four, the four layers I'm thinking about. The four layers we talked about, they have certain frequency. And because they're in effect consciousness, they're, they're a form of light. Uh. So in effect, the heart, the heart, the light you're talking about is the light of your consciousness, different layers of your consciousness that exploring that, that dimension. Mm. You understand? So it's that, that that you're experiencing. I I love it because it, it's taught me so much. It's there's been m many situations in my life where I just wasn't sure what to do. You know, especially when I'm guiding people whose lives are very complicated and they have really tricky problems. So I find that I can, for example, I can meet with that person's soul, but if I bring my consciousness to my heart then I can actually see and perceive things that I can't if I don't use that path to the connection to that person's soul. Yes, as I said, heart is a very is a gateway and it's a very a very sensitive receptacle, which you need to develop over time and the sensitivity increases. And one thing the rhythms do increase the sensitivity of the heart to these certain vibrations. And, and, and these rhythms are very powerful in terms of the vibrations they produce. They are sacred for the vibrations. They are very pure vibrations to a particular dimension, higher consciousness. So you have infinite dimensions and not all a higher consciousness. But the rhythms are sacred because they open a gateway to that particular dimension, which we consider sacred, higher dimension. Okay. Yes. So, so you're exposing yourself to that frequency and not, and, and, and trying to avoid other frequencies away from your body and your heart. So this is an important point, to know what frequency to expose yourself 
and what frequencies to avoid. And this is, in effect, the realm of a Sufi master who knows the rhythms and knows which rhythms to give to which student in order to, to work. And this rhythm could be the mantra they give, i.e., they give to the give, or it could be the rhythm they give. I, when you make a rhythm, you're actually playing the vibration contained in the mantra. So when I'm reciting a mantra, I'm trying to connect to the, to the vibration of the mantra indirectly by reciting it. But when I play the mantra on a drum, I'm connecting to that mantra directly, yes. the vibration directly. So that's why Sufis use the, the drum. It's more effective, more efficient way of connecting to the vibration of the mantra. And each, each rhythm is actually a mantra, a key to open a particular door within yourself. And just another perspective, because I also practice Native American Indian shamanic practices as part of my own practice and have for many years, the, the, what I perceive to be the reality of this is that it's ultimately the soul, which is God incarnate, that is using our heart as its own drum. It is what's making our heart beat. It's the soul that inspires the beat of the heart. No soul, no heartbeat. So I feel that by moving deeper into the heart, I find when I want to really have deep connection with my soul, sometimes I'll sit in meditation and just hold my finger on my carotid pulse and I'll feel the rhythm of that drumbeat and let it take me deeper into my own soul consciousness. I'm just curious how that sits with you. So that's interesting because, in effect, you are you are doing the the heart meditation in in, in, a, in a two two ways one one in here, and there's a special verse in the Quran and it says God says I am closer to you than your jugular vein. Yeah. So in effect, this is a, this is a clue to this. So the Quran doesn't say this just for a, you know for, for for sake of saying it. It's giving you a clue. So the i.e. the jugular vein which connects the heart to the brain has a special significance. Now, but if I listen to the heartbeat itself all the time, I, I, I in effect, this, this, this beating connects me to the other dimension. Yes. So it's like knocking on a door. If I'm long, if I knock long enough and hard enough, the door opens. Yes. The same way I can use a drum to take myself into a trance state, I can just let my heart be the drum. So instead of feeling the vibration of a physical drum that I'm playing, I just, hold my crowd and what happens as I relax, I begin to feel my heart pulsing through my whole body. I become conscious of every cell reacting. And then as yes. I relax deeper, then I find myself going into different dimensions where my soul is wanting to show me something, whether it be about the nature of the universe or consciousness or uh, whatever it is that I'm, or sometimes I'm just saying, so show me what you want to show me. Yeah, so I, I guess my suggestion is you make it, you make it indirect connection. So change the co connection to make it direct connection to the heart, rather than, because here you, you are feeling the, the, the echo of the heartbeat, not necessarily dark. Get focused on the heartbeat itself so you can feel it all down your heart. So this is the next step you should go to. Well, what I'm saying, what I did say, but you must not have heard me is that I use oh. that until I get deep enough to feel the heart through in every cell of my body. And then I'm actually no longer needing to feel the heart here because I'm actually, I'm immersed in the heart. I'm actually, I'm almost as though I've become the heart. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Now, the, the rhythms get you to that state, but also because of the vibration, they open a particular door. Yes. Okay, so so it's important to play the rhythms because they open a particular door for you. 
the heart is knocking, which door you open is depend on the frequency of that you're playing. Yeah. And, and I like to use the drums. I actually bought myself a Sufi drum. And I, I don't know the, remember the name of it right now, but I, I was inspired by watching one of your videos. It's the one with the, the little metal. Uh, is it okay, round one? And you hold by, by, by the heart, the daft? Yeah, it's, it's a daft. Okay. Yes, it's a daft drum. Yeah. yeah. That, so that's a Sufi drum. And it's, and it's, and it, well, it's using Sufi, uh, Sufi music, but it's really specifically used for heart meditation. Because the way you hold it, you play cover the heart, and the and the vibration go directly into the heart. Well, you've inspired me to start using it in my morning meditation. So I'm going to honor you as my inspiration, and I will start instead of tapping to my crowd and then to my heart. I will see if I can let my heart guide me into the drum and see what happens. P3OM by Bioptimizers is hands down one of the most important supplements to have on you everywhere you go. If you're traveling, if you go to work, if you're going to friend's house to eat, this product will knock out food poisoning and almost any kind of gut disorder from viruses, bacteria, fungi, whatever could irritate your gut so quickly. It's mind-blowing. I have been using this product since Wade Lightheart first turned me on to it, and he's the formulator of it. And I've got Wade here to tell us how it works, but I just want you to hear it from me. I have all my clients use this. I try to get it to friends, to family members, because it is really like your own bodyguard. So Wade, how in the world does this thing work so well every time? Well, as you know, we're very research oriented and we have literally a university in Croatia that we do microbiome testing with our labs of PhDs to find out what's the most effective formulation. And we are quickly moving into the post-antibiotic world where we need to cultivate super probiotics. We all heard of super bad bacteria in hospitals and stuff that are antibiotic resistance. But what we did, we worked with a medical doctor that was able to take an aggressive strain of L. plantarum, which is a very aggressive strain, and then put it through almost like a BUDS camp, a Navy SEALs training where we subjected this particular probiotic to a toxic environment. We ran a sine wave through it. And out of that survived only about somewhere between 2 and 3%. We then take that and grow it on very special food. We feed them just like you would feed a great athlete. You feed them special food. And the probiotics develop unique capabilities. We have a U.S. patent that is so powerful, I can't read it on the airwaves because we'd get canceled. But what I can say is when you put P3OM in your body, it goes out and breaks down any undigested protein, whether it's in your gut or through your blood system. And it becomes your Navy SEALs defense force, if you will, to go out and wipe out whatever pathogen might come in your body. You just need more of these guys to overwhelm it. It takes it out. It cleans up any messes. And for the last 18 years, I've been using P3OM daily. And I can honestly say, I've never been sick during that time. If I feel something coming on, I just double down my dosage, take four caps every night. If I get a little, if I'm traveling, I take twice that. And it's been great. A lot of our people do it. And it's one of our best-selling products. And it's available to your audience. Just go to p3om.com slash living40. Put in Paul 10, get a 10% discount. And if it's not the best probiotic you've ever had in your life, you get 100% of your money back. 
That's from us at Bioptimizers. That's our guarantee for you. Go get it. It's for real. I love the stuff. Thank you, Wade. So let's do an experiment now. Okay. So first, we listen to your heartbeat without anything. Don't not, just just focus on the heart, and then after that, see how, how much connection you have to the heart, and then we listen to one of the rhythms, okay. which we play, and do the same exercise, and see if there's a distinct difference between the connection to the heart you have with rhythms or without rhythms. So, so I'm going to invite everybody to do it with us, so they're not just sitting there twiddling their thumbs while I'm <laughs> connecting to my heart. And we have two types of rhythms. One is the percussion instrument, yeah, and one is the instrumental. So we'll do both. So we're doing three comparative studies. I'm a scientist by background, and I say to everybody that a Gnostic should be a scientist. Yes, and they should use the lab. The lab is the body, so they should experiment this lab in order to gain access to understanding the universe. I think that so was a good. That was a good piece of the article that you wrote. You talked about that yeah. in there, and I've read that in other Sufi literature as well. Yeah. So the key, the key is a scientist uses their lab to look at the, the world outside. A Sufi uses the lab, the body, to look inside, from inside to, uh, to the whole universe. Yes. So this is the point. So we're, we're going to spend a minute or two just connecting to yeah. our hearts? So two minutes on the heart. Then we stop, play the rhythms, one rhythm, focus on the heart again, two more minutes. Stop the second rhythm, which is the instrumental, and then you do a comparative study. So we have three comparative studies. And come back, compare notes. Okay. We're almost, good? yeah, we're almost on the top of a minute right here. So here we go now. Okay. That was great. Make a man mental note. I got it. And then, and then we go to the next one. So play one, play, play the first uh, instrument. Here we go. Oh, this, this, this recording is actually does, does three minutes of the music and then two minutes of silence. So the silence already ended in the recording. So just continue with the silence with recording. Okay. Here we go, everybody. This. Hold your memory of your heart.
Okay. Okay, now we can play, we can, we can talk, or if you want, we try the instrumental version and compare that at the end. What would you like to do? You want to? You're the host. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe we can talk a little bit about it. Okay. Just so that we don't leave people sitting in so much silence that they <laughs> want to skip the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a very interesting experience. At first, when the drum began to play, the feeling I had was, wow, the connection to my own heartbeat was much more powerful and revealing. Uh, when I connected to my own heartbeat and just let my ego dissolve into, I brought my consciousness into my heart, so I brought my locus of consciousness inside my actual heart. And then what happened is I started having a vision of emptiness, complete emptiness, and all of a sudden a, a, a light appeared from a point, something so small that it isn't even physically tangible, but which we have mathematically a point, but it was bursting with light in every direction like a, like a supernova. And so I sensed that was the light of my own soul. But I just sat with it. I didn't try to approach it or do anything with it. And it was a very calming, um, soothing sense. As the music began to play, after maybe the first minute or so, all of a sudden I, I saw the ocean waves moving on the shore, pulsing in and out waves crashing on the shore then all of a sudden i saw a big huge river flowing with rapids and rocks and parts where it was still but parts where it was moving very quickly and then i began to feel the rhythm of the heart moving through all of nature and then all of a sudden i began to see galaxies spinning and then I saw a universe of stars, and all of a sudden the stars all turned into soup whirling dervishes. So they almost as though they had replaced the stars. I saw whirling dervishes everywhere. And then I saw all of a sudden the 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 view my soul was giving me expanded out until the universe itself disappeared. And there was just emptiness, and all of a sudden then there was like a buildup of tension or energy, and I saw a massive explosion out of which a myriad of pieces of matter began to spin, and all of a sudden planets and stars started congealing together, and I saw the recreation of an entire universe happening like a slow-motion film inside of me. And as it got where the music was faster and and more intense toward the end i began to see the clash of like male elk or or bighorn sheep or like the silverback gorillas competing against each other and then i saw human beings going to war with each other and i saw how it was all surrounded by this pumping energy of the heart. And what the a feeling I got was that 
there's this natural threshing that happens so that we ultimately are brought to a point of realizing what's real and atemporal or eternal versus what's temporary. And that somehow all the warring is actually a part of getting us past these superficial things that we get caught and our mind gets trapped into, but it ultimately splits us open to the deeper essence of ourselves. So it was a, it was very quite a profound um, visualization that was, you know, I'm, I'm just being a witness to it and it was taking me on this whole journey is what I had experienced. Interesting. So uh, the first thing is that you you had this through second hand because you had it through audio. Yeah. So in reality, the Sufis played the deaf, so it's more direct. So here, it's not that not, 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 it doesn't have the same impact that if you played it the deaf. I the noticed deaf too in that regard that I, I found that because I'm hearing it through my ears and my head, I'm not experiencing it through my body like when I play a drum exactly. or if I'm next to someone playing a drum. So. I kept having to consciously remind myself to feel the music through my whole body, not just my head. Yeah. So that's, that's the disadvantage of having a, like a Zoom call or something like this because yeah. you can't play. That's the, that's the disadvantage of it. The other thing is that you mentioned that you, it brought you emptiness at the beginning. So that's the purpose. No thoughts. Yeah. Usually to control your thoughts takes a long time to have no thoughts. So the fact that the rhythms got you to that level, it shows the power of the rhythm. That it got you to the level with no thoughts. Yes. And the other interesting thing that uh, in this uh, visualization of the images, which is really recreation itself, in some sense, it, you you must understand, and in some sense, you are you are seeing things that you are being exposed to, and then you, re you relive it in that experience. But also, the, the what you just said about life is interesting because it is, in fact, big university education. And we need to go through this education to un understand the self itself in order to move on to the next dimension. And in that sense, and those who don't uh, go through this university or drop out, then they, they, they still have to continue this uh, teachings, uh, this lesson later on. But those who, who are active and seekers or want to go further and further, try to pass the university in this life. <laughs> so that's an important point. The other interesting thing is that I think as when you are in this state, not to impose anything onto the state, i.e. be an objective observer. It's a very important mm -hmm. point. Because if you're not an objective observer and you become attached to any experience, that experience defines you and locks you up. So, And it's a very great temptation because I always tell my students, imagine you're sitting in a train and the train is going through a beautiful scenery. You're looking at the scenery outside the window, but don't get attached to the window. As soon as you get attached to what's in the window, you're getting off the train. And getting off the train is a very big no-no because you stop the travel. Mm -hmm. So you must keep continuing evolving. So this is an important point. We not be attached to anything. You're just an objective observer of things around you. And eventually you let the high consciousness to show you what he wants to show you. That's what I do. For your own journey. I just emptied, I just emptied myself and let the music do whatever it wanted to do. But because I'm clairvoyant, whenever I listen to music, for example, of any type, if I empty myself, then I, I see the imagery, the music is inspiring inside of my soul. So, so people are different. I remember I played this rhythm uh, once in, uh, in Holland uh, for a particular lady. In, uh, and she started drawing out the patterns yeah. 
on a, on a piece of paper. And when I looked at it, I understood she was actually visualizing the vibration of the frequencies, and she was she was seeing it. She was seeing the so people re- react differently. So and it's mm-hmm. interesting how people react to these things. But the point is that what I said, the objective observer is a key. Yes. Otherwise, you limit yourself. So this yeah. is an important point. Yeah. See, I'm I'm not creating anything I saw. I'm just turning myself into the canvas or the empty screen. Exactly. And I'm That's just, what you, what you want to be. So what I shared with you is what the music brought onto the screen by just me emptying myself, having no attempt to control, because I wouldn't have even known what to imagine with the music. I don't know what it's going to create in me. So, so but, uh, but I story, loved it. The story it was, of Rumi. What's this that? Story of Rumi is very, this, this story of Rumi applies to you. Okay. This, I'm going to, so there's a famous story of Rumi about the contest of painters. Uh, have you heard the story of the contest of painters of Rumi? I don't yeah. think so, not yet. <laughs> okay, so one day the king uh, had two sets of painters. One was Chinese painters, and one was Roman painters. And yes, I, saying, I I have heard it, but I want you to tell it anyhow. Okay, and in this contest, they wanted to show who which were the best painters. Yes, in the kings. So the king says, "Okay, I want to show you have a contest." So what do you do? He gave one side of the room to Chinese painters to paint. And other side over to the Romans, and he created a big curtain between the two, so they couldn't cheat. And and he, and he would occasionally come and peek. So he came, he came in one day, peek, and he saw the Chinese were basically painting miniature, beautiful, miniature, colorful paintings, and the Romans all were doing was washing, uh-huh. washing the walls. They were all doing washing. So said, well, maybe they're preparing the groundwork. He came back a week later, and he saw the, the picture, the minarets, they're very beautiful in Chinese, very beautiful Chinese paintings. But the Romans were still cleaning, still cleaning. They want this. They, they, they just keep wiping and cleaning. They didn't come back. At the end of the contest, he had given him a month. He came at the end of the day, and then he came and he saw that, that the beautiful painting of the Chinese, and then he saw the Romans had, had had nothing but empty wall. And he was very dejected. So what's going on here? The Roman says, wait. You first see the Chinese. He saw the Chinese. They're beautiful. Then into Rome and said, now we show you the beauty of Chinese paintings. He says, how? They removed the curtain. Yes. When they removed the curtain, the reflection of a Chinese painting, it created an echo of images, which is much, much more powerful than a single image. <laughs> yeah. And then Rumi says, Sufis are the Romans. Yeah. <laughs> and he says that the, 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 the Chinese painters are actually the world of forms. The world yeah. of forms. Yeah. The dimensions are, are the invisible dimension. Which the heart of a seeker reflects is reflected on it during meditation. Yes. Or during connection. So this is an effect, the Sufi experience that he's describing under meditation, a beautiful story. Yeah. Which you, in effect, is describing yourself in some sense. Yeah, I think I had the Chinese in me and the Romans because I was becoming the empty wall and, and the the music was giving me the Chinese paintings to reflect. <laughs> But the, the thing is, they're both inside all of us. But yes, the, yes. The, the key the key is to understand that. Really. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. You want to do the next one? Yeah, okay. So the same practice. Listen, and then it stops, and then we focus on the heartbeat. Okay, Okay. so listen, and then take two minutes to just... I think it stops, and then the two minutes continues are, are basically silent. So we just follow the turn of the recording. Okay, here we go, everybody.
Okay, we're two minutes there. So this was the instrumental version of the, the previous rhythm. And they're both heartbeats. They were heartbeat basically rhythm playing. And so what's the reflection of difference between you and this? This one was definitely different. Um, I found all the other instruments initially distracting from the ability to feel the heart pulsation. As I relaxed into it, though, the first thing that happened is all of a sudden I found myself sitting next to a very big waterfall, like coming off the side of a mountain into a rock pool. And I was just feeling the spray of the water and the energy of the waterfall. And all of a sudden the sun began to rise over the mountain that the waterfall was coming out of. And then I just stayed sort of in this witness state and then it went to a period of emptiness and all of a sudden the emptiness filled itself with stars and they were all rotating around a central star that never moved. And that went on for a long time. And then something really interesting happened. It went back to emptiness. But all of a sudden I was standing on the opposite side of a camel. And there was this older woman, probably 70, milking the cow. She was sitting on the stool on the other side of the cow, milking it into a bucket. And she leaned down and looked at me and smiled and went like this with her finger, like, come here, I want to show you something. And she just looked me in the eyes and I could feel the intensity of her presence it had an effect on me, like, like I was next to somebody that was very enlightened, I guess would be the feeling. And then she smiled at me and just waved like this, like saying, you don't have to stay here, but hello. And then I relaxed. Uh, I, I, I just let it unfold and I went back to just emptiness. And then it went back to the stars like a giant galaxy rotating around one particular star almost like our north star is fixed and it, it just was this huge spinning universe or galaxy but there's just the one point in the middle that never moved and then it faded into emptiness as the music was emptying ending and i just was in um a complete state of uh i guess no mind um nothing on the canvas just emptiness interesting so people react differently to the to the instrumental version and uh, and to the percussion uh, my experience the people who are are more they're more receptive to emptiness uh, from the for the drum and the drum is on its own with the with the instrumental version, they get a bit more uh, attracted to the to the melody rather than the, the drum. So that's uh, the other thing. I I feel the difference between the first and the second is the second one creates a feeling of longing within me. Uh huh. I can see the that. One, the other instruments yeah. do have that pulling. Yeah. I think yeah. that's what was harder for me is because uh, maybe it's just me, but I. I craved the drum. I was almost feeling like I was being pulled out of my heart by all the other instruments and more into my visual reaction or experience. Where with the previous one, the drum, I, I was able to, I found it easier to stay right in my heart. 
it's more powerful. It's, the, the percussion is on its own is much more powerful in terms of emptiness and effect. But the, the longing and the, and the versatility of the string instruments have, have created different sensation. And this longing can become a very, very powerful uh, love, full of attraction to, to different dimensions. So this is an important point. But everyone reacts differently. That's why I put the same rhythm in two different branches. But to be honest, there are many rhythms. There are 24 uh, families with 13 each, so 720 rhythms. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a lot to... <laughs> store in the memory banks, but I imagine with enough practice, they just sort of become part of you. Yes, but to be honest, uh, you only need a handful to get uh, to the emptiness because the emptiness is the key. And then the em- and then from this emptiness, as we, as you are becoming ca- more, ca- and the connection becomes deeper and deeper, this canvas you've created becomes an instrument for a higher consciousness to write or paint whatever it wants on you. And then it eventually becomes a two-way communication between you and the higher consciousness, and it keeps going. That's why I paint. For me, painting is a spiritual practice where I empty myself and just say to my soul, take the brush and let me be the instrument of your expression. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately in Sufism, uh, because of the uh, dogma religious of the clerics, the, the people are not, uh, they're very oppressive. They didn't allow pa- Sufi painters. That's the oh, sad thing. that's really sad. But but on the flip side, the energy of Sufism went to poetry. So the poetry of Sufism is unlike any other poetry. And the interesting point about Rumi is that, and, and like other Sufi poetry, his poetry is full of all these rhythms. So every rhythms I get are inside there. Mm. And so he was, in effect, reciting these rhythms as he was connected. Right. And in the words that he was saying. So he, he, before, there was no musical notes, but he, the words were carrying the rhythms. Yes. And uh, so, in effect, these rhythms which we hear, in effect, are, are not all of them, but a uh, large section of them are in Rumi's poetry. That's beautiful. I guess that's it. Uh, that's, that's the part of the, ex- the experience I wanted to share. Well, that was beautiful. I'm grateful that you did. I really, I found it unique and I guess if I had to encapsulate what I saw in those two practices we just did, it was as though spirit was showing me the movement of silence. It's a very interesting comment because uh, yesterday I gave a class on the Sufi music and I told them the key of the Sufi music is not the beats, it's the silence in the middle. Yeah. It was as though... And I've had this experience many times in deep meditation is, is that we have this mental conception of silence is almost as though it's nothing. But whenever I've penetrated into the emptiness that I would call silence, I find that it, it is beyond atomic with the intensity of energy. And it's, I describe it as a, an impulse to create that is infinitely strong. Mm. And it's, it's, I find the deeper I go into silence, the more I'm like a, a star about to explode. And I feel this building and building and building. And, and the closest I can get to it as an analogy is when I'm sleeping, I get to a certain point where my body is rested enough that my soul wants to go create and so even though my mind might think i'm tired there's a spiritual energy in me that overpowers any concept of physical fatigue and and the creative impulse is so strong that i i can't stay in bed because i'm 
being moved to do what I'm here to do, you know? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, as I said, in this, to me, the music, the sacred rhythms, the beats are a pretext for the silence. Yeah. <laughs> mini gap. Yeah, so it's that's like a frame on the painting of silence. Yeah. And, and go back to Zen. and Zen, people, they do black and white painting, and in effect, the, the black brings out the white painting, and the white brings the painting. So it's a similar concept in Zen. Yes. And in music. Hi, everybody. One of my favorite Symbiotica products, which I'd love to use when you got two kids in the house that bring home all sorts of stuff from school and have runny noses and coughs like kids often do. So if I need a little backup, I get out my Symbiotica liposomal vitamin C. Tastes great. Feels great. I use it regularly. And it's just a good backup plan to support your immune system. But better yet, I've got Shervine, the creator of the product, right here to tell us more about it. So Shervine, what's unique about your liposomal vitamin C? Well, this has evolved over the years. This is our ninth iteration. And this is coming from fermented cassava, mm. not coming from corn. And it's in liposomal form. And we also have added compounds in there, including biotin and potassium bicarbonate, which is a very highly absorbing form of potassium. This right here is delicious. It is delicious. Okay? You know, we're using organic vanilla and organic extracts and citrus bioflavonoids, and you're getting a thousand milligrams of fermented vitamin C in liposomal form. So we're talking about pure absorption. So if you're, you know, you got the everyday cold or you're feeling the chills or you just need a boost in your immune system, boom, you can hit that right there. It's good for children. It's good for, you know, elderly. Anyone can have it. And it is one of my favorite products. Or if you're going to go on an airplane or being around a lot of people that aren't healthy and you just want a little immune backup or immune boost. Absolutely. That's delicious, mm. high absorbing, and gets to the subcellular level almost immediately. And kids love it. Kids love it. I haven't met anyone that doesn't like the flavor. It's beautiful. Yeah. So to get your Living 4D discount, go to symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. To get your 15% discount on checkout, use the code capital L, number four, capital D, 15. Enjoy your Symbiotica liposomal vitamin C. I know from my studies of Sufism that like Zen, Sufi masters often use stories, parables, and allegories to teach their students to help them see behind the veil of key issues in life. Can you share some key Sufi teaching stories that apply to issues in life that we all have to deal with? I guess it's a cue for the third story, the last story, which is the all taste the same. So maybe you can play that and, and okay. then you can have a reflection on that. That's oh, what I love it. To do. I'm really glad you, you uh, inspired me and Penny to figure out how to do the technology on this because <laughs> this is actually quite fun. Here it comes. Taste the same. Some children saw Nasruddin coming from the vineyard with two baskets full of grapes, loaded on his donkey. They gathered around him and asked him to give them a taste. Nasruddin picked up a bunch of grapes and gave each child a grape. You have so much, but you gave us so little, the children whined. There is no difference whether you have a basketful or a small piece. They all taste the same, Nasruddin answered and continued on his way. Hmm, yeah. Are you wanting me to tell you what I think that means? Yes, that, that's the whole idea. <laughs> what, what it means to me in my heart is that he is saying that 
there's only one foundation to life. The taste to me represents love. And that no matter how many grapes you taste or people you love or cars you have or toys you have, ultimately they're all expressions of the one taste that is fundamental to the experience of life. Hmm. That's an interesting take. Interesting. I mean, as I said, every take, uh, every time I share these stories, uh, every take is actually uh, is correct because they're showing a light from their perspective, the person, and that collectively we see the whole uh, puzzle of the story and why uh, basically unravel in front of us and we learn more from the stories. So this is the wisdom of the stories. I will share one uh, one reflection of mine. I mean, this reflection here, I think, an astrid is, is playing the role of a teacher. So in effect, uh, he's, he's riding a donkey means that he's, he's reigning the ego itself. Ah, oh, yeah. Ego. And and he and the grapes are the fruit of his endeavors, his spiritual experiences. Ah. And then the people ask, what does this experience taste like? And he gives the children, the students, a little bit. And then he says, Why well, you have so much can you share? And he says, No, one tastes the same. Because, because unless you work for it, you never appreciate it. Right. So That's a good way to look key, at it. The key is if you want more, go for it and do your own work and fill your basket with, with your own grapes. Yeah, that's great. I like that. I love, I love, um, you know, I can see this must be great fun for you to use these stories and hear everybody's reaction to them. Yeah, it's great. Fact, it's you, great. You've inspired me. I'm going to start collecting my favorite stories and sit with my students and do this because I want to see how they respond. <laughs> so you're following the steps of Nasruddin. He lived 800 years ago. So it's a good, good, good step to follow. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll, I, I, I won't ask him for any of his grapes, though. I'll bring my own. <laughs> That's correct. The other point about grape, it's, it is the symbol of intoxication, divine ecstasy. So yes, the wine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that, that, was, that was the answer to your question, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was fun. I, I really enjoy this. It's really fun to share with you in this way. So thank you for inspiring this format together. How I'd like to know how has being a Sufi helped you and helped you help others through the worldwide trauma of COVID and and now the impending and unfolding plans of the Great Reset and all the chaos and confusion that all that is creating worldwide for people because it certainly does have the beehive a buzz. So how has being a Sufi helped you and helped you help others with the stress of the world? So I think here I want to go back to the definition of Sufism, which we said the path of spiritual evolution of mind, body, and soul. This is important because a Sufi does not define him or herself by any of those, the, 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 uh, the temporal part, but the eternal part. And therefore, he or she defines himself by the connection they develop. And this is important because a Sufi and a, non, a non-Sufi, they go through the same turmoils in life, just like everybody else. So they have a boat. And they go through the same storms. But a Sufi or, a, or another seeker, whoever it was connected, he or she doesn't let the, the connection, doesn't let the boat sink. The boat floats. The other people who don't have the connection established can become susceptible to sinking. Yes. And, and they, and then, and, and the sinking could be depression, anxiety, sadness, mental health issues. But, but because they associate themselves with the, the temporal aspect of themselves, not the eternal aspect of themselves, and they don't have this deep connection. Go back to the rope story, the rope of the Nasruddin. Yeah. But a Sufi who's developed the rope, he or she leans on the rope 
And in some sense, he or she has trust in the rope that this, this boat that they are in will not sink. And mm. sometimes after the storm, the rope shows them why they had to go through the storm and what was the wisdom behind it so they can learn this wisdom and pass on to the next generation. Right. So, so in that sense, in, in, in the time of my uh, the COVID, when, it was, when we were lockdowns in UK for a bit, I it became the, one of the most productive times of my, my life. I started writing uh, different stories. Mm. So, and, so, and nothing changed for me in that sense. I, I actually become more productive. Yeah, it was the same with me. Nothing, nothing changed except a lot more emails and phone calls from very stressed yeah. out people. But for me, the connection, which is which is carrying me, is guiding me, and it doesn't let my my boat sink. It just yes. I have this trust I develop, and this this trust is important because every spiritual person who has this connection doesn't matter if they're Zen, Buddhist, Hindu, they re, they rely on this this rope they have, and this helps them to ride the waves. You can't avoid the waves. No, the storm. well, they're life. Because the storms, yeah, the life and the teaching. Yeah. And, and Dr. Tabander says, uh, said an important thing. He said a Sufi and a normal person may go through the same storm, but a Sufi should learn from it. Otherwise, if you don't learn, they're not different to the other person, and they keep repeating the same storms. Yes. A Sufi should go to different storms. Yeah, I like that. More. Mm-hmm. Very good. I, I, I think that's a very powerful lesson. You know, Rumi was not only a Sufi master, but founded a Sufi, Sufi order, the Whirling Dervishes, as you know. Um, he surely triggered backlashes from the Orthodox Muslim community of his day. How do you feel Rumi would have handled the backlashes that he surely would have triggered walking around spouting off poetry, some of which was quite exotic and risque? <laughs> okay, so I, I give you the short answer. Actually, Rumi, and I give you a different answer too. Rumi, actually, for one of the reasons I like Rumi, because he was not, not, not dogmatic at all, and he was a rebel. And he, he was a dogma buster. And, and in his famous poetry, he says, I'm not a Muslim, not a Hindu, I'm not a Zoroastrian, I'm not a Jew. I am a seeker of unity, and unity is what I seek. So he's, he's dogma busting everything. So that's why I like Rumi. Me too. But the other thing, the other thing, the reason is he could do this is because he lived in a state where the, the, the Khalif or the Sultan was his student. Right. I forgot about that. Yes. I, I read about that. Yeah. So therefore he had this ability. So he had this, he was this lucky. He was like so the court effect, jester. <laughs> yeah. In effect, uh, the, the Sultan invited Rumi's father to stay. And when Rumi passed away and then afterwards he became the Sufi master, he became resident. And in, he has a discourse. So he has three books and his discourse is called Fia Mafi. Means it is what it is. And if you read this, you read the dialogue of the Sultan and, and Rumi and, and Sultan walks in like a student. In front of a king, the king is is Rumi here. So, and this discourse tells you that he had great respect for Rumi, and therefore he and therefore Rumi could not be um, be suppressed, or he wouldn't allow the clerics to do it. But it doesn't mean that today Rumi is not suppressed, uh, because in Iran, a lot of clerics hate Rumi, and and he was he he was a the- theologian in the beginning, but he broke all the dogmas. He has this famous poetry. He says that I took the essence of the Quran. Into my mass navy, and I threw the covers to the fools. Yeah, and the fools are the clerics. So yes. he was very anti-cleric. So that's why he's, he doesn't. The clerics don't like him. But during his time, he was lucky that he, the, the sultan of that Konya was his student. Otherwise, he would have been beheaded. In fact, many Sufis are. In fact, one of the great Sufis uh, who was uh, because perhaps you should read this. But if you never read this, the book from Corbin is the Iranian Man of Light. It's about yeah. Sufi yeah, yeah, I've I've read it. I've got it. Yeah, it's a great book. I've got, three of, I've got three, three of the books on 
I, I pronounce it Shirawardi, but I don't know how to pronounce it. How do you pronounce his name? Sorhavardi. Sorhavardi? Sorhavardi. Sorhavardi. Yeah, I, I, because no one's ever taught me to pronounce it, but yeah. uh, a so buddy of mine he, he, turned me on. He's to amazing. It. Yeah, yeah, he, he was is amazing. amazing. Man. And he was another dogma buster, but he talks about experiences outside of most religions. So he's talking about it, and that's truly about the connection and experience and the connection in itself. But because of this, what he wrote down, they execute him at the age of 35 because of heresy. Yes. So, so in a sense that the Sufis, in effect, are all suppressed. In, in the last 200 years in Iran, I would say 90% of the Sufi masters have been killed. Yeah. Well, at least they're ready for it. Well, I mean, it's, you said to me why the world doesn't change. Because the clerics must suppress these wise people, and if they, if we, if we stand up to the clerics, maybe these wise people can can help to change the world. Well, and that's, that's the important point. what I've been doing my whole life. <laughs> me too. Exactly me too. that. One, me too. One of the things I do, I'm a human rights activist. I stand up for human rights everywhere. So that's an important point to do. Yes, I'm curious. I, I suspect I know what you'll say, but I have to ask. What would you say the Sufi master's way is of dealing with undeniable evil in the world today? So I will let you guide you to the, an article I wrote called Darkness and Light. So read uh -huh. that afterwards, okay? Yeah. But I will give you the uh, paraphrase that. It's on the website. So if you think about darkness and light, I wrote this article uh, for a magazine called uh, Forgotten uh, Parabola, but they didn't, they didn't take it. Uh -huh. So... So didn't take There's it. the clerics uh, again. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, no, I don't blame them because I'm not famous. So they want famous writers. But I wrote it because I thought they, they would get the attention of it. Anyway, in this, in this uh, darkness and uh, light, I make the analogy between dark and light. Because in some sense, we observe darkness. But in reality, darkness only exists in absence of light. Yeah. So this is an important point. I understand. So when you think about evil and goodness, evil only exists because there's no goodness. Right. Or the lack of goodness. This is yeah. an important point to understand. Yeah. So what does that mean? It means that as long as human beings are fixated on the ego and identify with the ego, evil will exist. Uh -huh. If they shift the, trend, the, the mentality towards the other dimensions themselves, evil will reside. Rumi has this famous poet. He says, at the beginning, a young, I was a young man. I wanted to change the world. Then I wised up. I realized I had to change myself first. Yeah. So this is an important, and this is the same thing Gandhi said. So this is an important point that the seeker understands to change the world, they must change themselves first. So when they change themselves, they create a domino effect that they change around themselves. But, but this doesn't mean that you sit passive and you watch other people being suppressed because no, because you cannot be intolerant of intolerance because mm -hmm. that's appeasement. So mm -hmm. you must stand up for the, for the, for the oppressed. And this is what Gandhi did. And in effect, why I, when I talked about Dr. Taban there, they called him the, the Gandhi of Iran. He did the same thing. He stood up for the rights of the individuals so that the rights are not suppressed. So we must, as individuals, come together and stop against tyranny. The, the right. tyrannical regimes like oppressive regimes like Russia, China, Iran, these regimes are suppressing their, their countries. And, and this has a cascade effect across the whole world yeah. and through social media and everything else. So in effect, if we stand up for those things, and therefore, we change. We can change the world this way. So you change yourself and stand up for the rights of others. And when we do this, this cascading effect will bring peace to the world. 
because the, the darkness will fade when light is coming brighter and brighter. So this is an important point. Yeah, it's a, it's a point that, that I've shared and, and several of my guests, such as Paul Levy and others, have shared. I think anybody that really understands the the depth of spiritual development and spiritual teachings is aware of of the the relationship of light and dark and polarity that you've just described and i think it's a and and carl jung devoted his whole life to teaching individuation for exactly that reason you know and he certainly lived through uh some dark times with nazi germany and everything um Meredith, it's been a, a, a absolutely gorgeous dialogue and, and sharing and, and experience, actually. Um, are there any specific books, audiobooks, videos, or anything else you'd like to uh, direct the listeners to or where they can learn more about your specific teachings or anything that you'd like to suggest? Yes. Uh, first, I would like to, uh, for Sufism, I think that, as I mentioned, two famous, uh, I guess, researchers uh, on the Sufism are uh, Corbin, Henry Corbin, his books, which we talked about, and Izitsu. These two people I've, I highly recommend because they're truly scholastic works they do and, and, and they're very accurate. And they've done a lot of time uh, and effort, years of studying the Sufism. For example, uh, Corbin was stuck during World War II in, it, in, uh, in, uh, in Turkey. He couldn't go to France, and he spent all his time looking, researching Sufi books. So, and he did a great, uh, he did a great uh, work on that. So, these are important. And in, in terms of modern uh, books, I would recommend my own teacher's book, Doctor Asmaish. He has two, uh, he has four or five books, two on Sufism called Pearl of Sufism, and Teachings of Sufi Master. So, these are two. And then he has uh, another book on the research on the Quran, which is very important because he talks about how the misconceptions about the Quran has come about. And in fact, the Quran is, is not really Arabic in a sense. It's written in Arabic grammar, but many of the words are written from different different languages, Aramaic and other things. So unless you under, have the history of the words, you right. can't understand the, the, the text of the Quran. So this is a very important book about understanding, breaking the dogma of people looking at the Quran. And he has a book on Jesus too, Dr. Azmaish, A-Z-M-A-Y-E-S-H. Okay, we'll put it in the show notes too so people can find it. And you're saying he has a... Book on the teachings of Jesus. He, he, yes, he talks about crucifixion, the, the act of crucifixion, and the, and how the how the Quran refers to crucifixion, how the Gnostic Gospels to crucifixion, and also teachings of Jesus in that book. And he has two books on on Sufism itself, and so these are and these are all in English, so which you can read. Excellent. And in terms of my own uh, my own things, uh, I mean, if people want to come and uh, join my, my classes, there is a, I have a every year I start a new cohort, and there's a free classes where I start, and they start on 29th of January by Zoom, no no, no money, you just have to sign up, and we will start this, and uh, it's once every month for six months. That's beautiful. And then they can come and join and learn about uh, what I've been talking to you and then other stuff about Sufism. And what's your website address again? www.heartmeditation.eu. Right on. Okay. And then you this there's a link you gave me here to the Zoom class. Is that for the class you were just talking about? Yes. So, so it's, through Eventbrite, they can just register. Okay. And that's the journey to inner peace? Exactly. Okay. Fantastic. I'm really glad Rachel connected me to you. I, I've, I've had a fantastic engaging 
experience together with you. And, and, uh, I love the stories. Yeah. I love the stories. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel, wherever you are, we're sending you our love. I love the stories. I love the music. It was, um, it was a beautiful, rich experience for me. I hope it was for all of you listening. Um, I love studying all the mystic branches of the world religions. I find that the greatest truths of every religion were offered by the mystics. And so I've spent a lot of my life studying the mystics of each of the world's religions and then comparing the orthodox teachings to the mystic teachings so I could see what happens when you actually engage God as a personal experience instead of a programmed uh, regurgitation of someone else's ideas. I hope some of you take this amazing offer to study with Merdad because you obviously know now he's quite deep and he can give you some beautiful guidance. So thanks to all of you for joining me. And let's all remember that the way we make positive change in the world is to create more harmony and light within ourselves. And then we automatically make the world a brighter place and displace the darkness with love. And also I'd like to say thank you to each of my sponsors for your love and support and your amazing high quality products, your sustainable practices. And thank you to all of you for buying anything from the sponsors that supports the podcast. So I can continue to do the work to create podcasts and find amazing people like Merdad to share with us. So lots of love. I will see you next time with something exciting and interesting and inspiring. A whole great spirit. Thank you, Paul, for every, for your time and for your patience and for your great uh, comments. I'm grateful for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Merdad. I'll look forward to maybe we can do it again in the future and talk about something a little different, but just as interesting. I hope so. All right. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Medad Nurami. You can find Medad online at heartmeditation.eu. That's heartmeditation.eu. Medad is also starting a six-month practical course via Zoom called Journey to Inner Peace and Well-Being. This course bridges personal development, science, and spirituality, and you can find out more about the course online at tiny.cc forward slash merdad. That's tiny.cc forward slash M-E-H-R-D-A-D. You can find Paul on Instagram and TikTok at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with Paul Check. You can also watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts. 